Binge with Star Wars. It's presented by State Farm. You know those days when it feels like problems just pop out of nowhere? The helpful folks at State Farm do. Like a fender bender when you're already late. Or a thief breaking into your home like an angry wampa and making off with your new flat screen TV. Luckily, there are more than 19,000 agents who are there for you. Because when it comes to auto and home insurance, State Farm agents are ready to help. Find an agent today at statefarm.com. Today's show is also brought to you by Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, the new action-adventure game from Respawn Entertainment. Taking place between Star Wars Revenge of the Sith and Star Wars A New Hope, players will wield a lightsaber, hone their force powers, and adventure across the galaxy in hopes of rebuilding the Jedi Order. Become a Jedi. Star Wars Jedi. Fallen Order. Available now on Xbox One, PS4, and PC. Ready to for two. I am wondering, why are you here? I'm looking for someone. Looking? Found a podcast you have, I would say. Mm-hmm. Right. With adult content, too, yes. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. Oh, and spoilers, too. <laughs> Wars not make binge great. And now, binge mode. Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. He told me enough. He told me you killed him. No. I am your father. No. No. It's not true. That's impossible. Search your feelings. You know it to be true. Welcome to Binge Mode Star Wars. Yes. Proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Allie Rubin, Editor-in-Chief of TheRinger.com. Oh, what a great website. <laughs> Joining me today, now that he's emerged from his overnight slumber inside the bowels of a tauntaun. I thought these things smell bad. Oh, yeah, It's Ringer Senior Creative, your Jedi Master, uh. Jason Concepcion. Man, but I tell you, when they're cooked up a little bit with the lightsaber, yeah, pretty that good. Sweet smell of cauterization. Mm. Wonderful. I gotta tell you, at least there's the sweet whiff of binge mode Star Wars. <laughs> We're exploring the wider Star Wars universe, from the Skywalker saga films to the anthology films to the Mandalorian, plus numerous other facets of a galaxy far, far away. All leading up to the release of Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker on December twentieth. Please make the journey to Hoth with us by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us. Give us those five-star ratings, or we will send a wampa after you. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is only for binge mode fans, which is an excellent place to swap tips for taking out ad-ats. And please head to theringer.com slash shop to check out our brand new binge mode merch. Wonderful whether you're on the snow bluffs of Hoth or the stinky swamps of Dagobah. Flexible fashion. Love it. Last time on binge mode, we dove into the Mandalorian chapter five 
the gunslinger. And today we're diving deep. Deep! Into the 1980 masterpiece, Star Wars Episode V, The Empire Strikes Back. As deep as the X-Wing in a Dagobah swamp, you know? Let's really get in there. Yeah, it is. As always, spoiler warning. We will be going deep on details from this film and the entire Star Wars saga to date. Taking official canon and legends, hashtag not canon, into account. So boot up the carbon freezing chamber. Boot up. Because it's time to head to Cloud City. Jason? Yeah! You must unlearn what you have learned. That's going to be difficult, honestly. Including to do the crawl, because we got to get right to today's big idea. That's impossible! (laughs) Search our feelings and use the force. The defining theme of this episode is revelations. Let's start with a little brief big picture talk before we get into the plot of the film. Some development changes heading into The Empire Strikes Back. Big development changes. Georgie? He didn't want to deal with it anymore. (laughs) Being in the trenches, micromanaging on the day-to-day, dealing with actors, dealing with cinematographers, dealing with the crew, blah, blah, blah. That's it! Director change. He brought in Irvin Kirshner. Love it. Kirshner, in a conversation with the masters, The Empire Strikes Back 30 years later, says— Which, folks, we will be referring to as a conversation, a shorthand moving forward. (laughs) Keep that in mind. He says, quote, I looked at him and I went, are you crazy? You want me to direct the second Star Wars? Why me? I love it. But George in that very same doc called him a very major talent who had been overlooked by the film industry. Kirshen continues, I was privileged to be chosen to direct The Empire Strikes Back. It was one of the great adventures of my life Aww. and also one of the most difficult, which makes it a great adventure. What a charming fellow. It really is. Wow. George also famously did not at least did not exclusively, individually, write the script for this. Lee Brackett, who we're going to talk about more later on in the 8 today, wrote an initial version. And then, of course, Lawrence Kasdan came in. Widely credited now, not only with writing the final version of the script that ultimately became the movie, but with, in many ways, solidifying the masterpiece and altering what people thought Star Wars can be. So in that same conversation, Lucas explained the decision to not write the screenplay Directly, this is fascinating, a really illuminating insight into this process. Quote, my opinion of myself as a writer is less than enthusiastic. And I felt that, one, I didn't want to have to go through all the drafts. (laughs) I I respect it. I respect it. (laughs) Me too. I mean, frankly, there's a, why couldn't he have stayed in this headspace during the prequels conversation? But we don't want to be cruel. We don't want to be cruel. (laughs) I think there's a way to read George's career where, you know, starting out with kind of like experimental filmmaking. He was very um, enmeshed in kind of like montage filmmaking and different styles of documentary filmmaking. And he's made comments over the years where it seemed as if he kind of, as intimated, he felt trapped by Mm -hmm. the success of Star Wars. And I think this is a way for him to like free himself as much as he could while still maintaining control. Right. The product itself that came from those decisions and myriad other decisions was the movie that Star Wars fans absolutely cherish and adore. The tone, the vibe, much darker. Really, this is the movie that establishes, obviously A New Hope is iconic and essential and elemental, but Empire is the one that establishes really what the variants of Star Wars could be, what the mythic status of Star Wars could be. We have, of course, the historic reveal and 
cliffhanger twist, I mean, which that, we will talk about at length. It takes it to Greek tragedy levels. Yes. And it's kind of one of those things where every aspect of the script, the cinematography, the production design, the set design, the costume design, all of it is so masterful that you have to acknowledge that it's a great film whether or not you like Star Wars. It's at that caliber of a movie-making experience, just utterly innovative from a filmmaking perspective beyond the story itself. And all of that translated to some serious box office success. Yes. The movie made $209 million domestically, $400 million worldwide in its initial release. This is in $1980. Yep. After re-release, it's up to $290 million domestically and $548 million worldwide. That makes it the 13th highest grossing movie of all time, wow. adjusted for inflation, three spots higher than your king, Avengers Endgame. <laughs> but interestingly, only the third highest Star Wars movie behind A New Hope and The Force Awakens. Critical and fan response, highest Rotten Tomatoes score for both critics yep. and audiences no at surprise. 95 and 97 percent fresh, respectively. Yes, absolutely no surprise. Won an Oscar for Best Sound as well as a Special Achievement Award at the ceremony for visual effects. And this is really the movie where it's like Star Wars A New Hope looks great. Mm -hmm. Empire Strikes Back looks fucking amazing. It's astonishing. John Williams was nominated for a score and lost, as did the crew nominated for Best Art Direction, was selected in 2010 for the National Film Registry, where it now sits alongside the first film, should uh, the apocalypse befall the globe, that film will be there in the vault for the aliens to discover Listen, and cherish. As it should be, yeah. <laughs> honestly. Roger Ebert, in his re-review of Empire yes. on RogerEbert.com, before the prequels, wrote of the movie, quote, The Empire Strikes Back is the best of the three Star Wars films and the most thought-provoking after the space opera cheerfulness of the original film, this one plunges into darkness and even despair yes. and surrenders more completely to the underlying mystery of the story. It is because of the emotions stirred in Empire that the entire series takes on a mythic quality that resonates back to the first and ahead to the third. This is the heart, he continues. Yes. In the glory days of science fiction, critics wrote about the sense of wonder. That's what Empire Strikes Back creates in us. Absolutely that is exactly right. Exactly right. And that ultimately is. The lasting legacy of the film, that coupled with the innovation that was so fully on display there, this all-time beloved classic, changing the perception not only of what Star Wars as a series could be, but really of what the genre yes. of science fiction and fantasy, big-budget blockbuster movie-making could be. And really, in some ways, of what filmmaking and story creation, period, could be. In the feature at George Lucas on the digital revolution, George says, quote, all art is based on how far you can push the technology. Talk about a fascinating insight into his respective process. We really feel that throughout the entire film, how fully he means that. It is a showcase of technological capability and marvels. You know, he explains how he and his team, in essence, invented digital editing between films at the beginning of the Star Wars saga, creating the edit droid, which they eventually sold to Avid, revolutionizing filmmaking in myriad other respects, new sound editing tech, and, and countless other examples. Former Pixar president Ed Catmull said, quote, Lucasfilm really was the only place at the time willing to take a risk, and George did that. And the effect was utterly revelatory. As Empire screenwriter Lawrence Kasdan says in a conversation with Masters, quote, it was as though all the advancements George had made in Star Wars had geometrically exploded in the few years between movies. Love it that. was just what you want from movies. People were rocked by it. They sat there in awe. Amazing. Matt Painter Harris and Ellen Shaw on Discoveries from Inside Matt Paintings Unveiled said, quote, 
I'm happy that something so small can be part of something so big. This is highly emblematic of the overall process and approach and appreciation those involved had from the smallest detail to the widest conception of wonder. That's awesome. All right, let's talk about the movie. Let's start with Luke and Yoda and Vader because these three are linked the entire way. So in that doc, a conversation with the masters, screenwriter Lawrence Kasdan says, quote, all you're looking for in any story is for there to be a conflict and a surprise and a development something that you don't expect. That's how all the good stories work. And in that moment, he's speaking specifically about the trap that is waiting on Cloud City. But his summation there fits really the entire film, a utterly commanding second act centered on a series of disclosures and epiphanies. And it also reminds us yet again of one of the great miracles of Star Wars, creating something utterly singular while abiding by such classical techniques. It's The movie-making version of introducing frozen nitrogen to quintessential French cuisine. We spoke in our New Hope podcast about how considerably Joseph Mm -hmm. Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces influenced George Lucas, and we see that guiding hand heavily in Empire. Again, to varying degrees, the monomyth fits aspects of each Star Wars movie, but also fits the arcs of each trilogy and indeed the entire saga. So while you can work the entire Empire plot into stages anew, if you're so inclined to do so, the film also functions and and really functions best as the continuation, the next installment of Luke's hero's journey, the continuation of the steps he began to take after receiving the call to adventure in episode four, with particular emphasis here on meeting with a mentor, a handier phrase offered up in the Christopher Vogler condensed 12-phase version of the hero's journey, the road of trials, and of course, atonement with the father. That will obviously also continue into Return of the Jedi. Quote, The paradox of creation, Campbell wrote, the coming of the forms of time out of eternity is the germinal secret of the Father. It can never be quite explained. Therefore, in every system of theology, there is an umbilical point, an Achilles tendon, which the finger of mother life has touched, and where the possibility of perfect knowledge has been impaired. The problem of the hero is to pierce himself, and therewith his world, precisely through that point to shatter and annihilate that key knot of his limited existence. That's what Empire Strikes Back is. And that's the task that awaits Luke Skywalker, no longer a farm boy, now a crucial member of the rebel leadership. Three years have passed since the Force and Force Ghost Obi-Wan guided Luke to the destruction of the Death Star. (laughs) (laughs) And quite a lot has happened since the Battle of Yavin, which... I will explore later today in the Jedi Temple. Luke is acting heroically, emerging as a leader here at the base on Hoth and for the entire rebel cause. And yet we can't help but feel when we join him again as if his destiny has kind of been put on hold. Mm -hmm. He hasn't been training as a Jedi. Who is to train him? We want to see Luke learning to use his lightsaber, not playing in the snow with (laughs) tauntauns. And it's funny, like, watching it now, like, with adult eyes and being like, man, should we, like, isn't there someone less— crucial to the Rebel Alliance that can go out there and do this? Do we have to send the Chosen One, like, out on a tauntaun (laughs) and go, like, scout the base? I know. Um, This is, of course, part (laughs) of the burden. Yes. Life doesn't wait for you, and there's quite a lot of life unfolding at the moment with the Galactic Civil War in full effect and the fate of the galaxy is at stake. Luke's task as commander is vital as well. It's amazing to think about Luke and his life in this moment. At once, 
unrecognizable to uh-huh. the kind of naive teen he was just a few years ago, yes. sipping on blue milk, complaining about uh-huh. not being able to join the academy or hang out with his friends or do the things he wanted to do, but still being leagues away from resembling yeah. what he is eventually going to be and the warrior he is going to be when he crosses the return threshold and masters his world and masters his abilities. Right now, he has one world to focus on, Hoth. The remote ice planet on which the rebels have established Echo Base, in which the filmmakers brought to life through a series of really highly innovative practical effects, including baking soda and micro balloons for the snow and trap doors to facilitate model and puppet movement for the motion capture cinematography. And it is a striking new setting and the kind of choice that really brilliantly reinforces both change and continuity alike. Because on the one hand, it's unlike anything that we've seen yet mm-hmm. to this point in Star Wars. But When the camera pans back, the snow might as well be the Dune Sea on Tatooine. But there aren't evaporators dotting this landscape. And so when Luke sees what he thinks is a meteor and what we know is a probe droid, Jason's favorite, (laughs) hit the ground as he's out completing his life-reading circle, it sparks his curiosity. And unfortunately for Luke, before he can set off, he's attacked by a wampa, leading to really in some ways our first revelation of the film. Luke's Tauntaun, which cried and reared as it sensed the obvious encroaching threat, is apparently better able to sense danger than a powerful force user. Tough look for my guy, Luke Skywalker. He is not yet trained. (laughs) I will die on this snow block. He's not yet trained (laughs) in the ways of the force. He's out there on pure instinct. He's just like a purely instinctive player. He doesn't know that I saw calls. him with the blast shield down on the Millennium Falcon okay, in a was, new hope. Again, that I'm was just saying that was optimal conditions. Here's the thing. Inside, a not in the elements. force user should sense the Wampa. I mean, the Wampa really that's the Wampa's environment. The Wampa lives there. Luke, it's like, you know, get it together. Listen, again, <laughs> I have to question why the rebel yes. leadership is like, let's send Luke Skywalker the hero of the Battle of Yavin, to do, like, menial, and I don't mean to say that, but menial tasks. (laughs) Anyway, cue up one of the great debates and mysteries in pop culture debated, even among those directly involved with Empire Strikes Back. Was the Wampa face-smalling added into the script to account for the injuries Mark Hamill suffered in a real-life car accident that occurred before the filming of Empire Strikes Back? George says no. Uh Carrie Fisher says yes. And on and on the list goes. I'm going to go with Carrie Fisher. Because she, she never didn't tell the truth. I, I strong agree. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Regardless, Luke finds himself the prisoner of a wampa, storing him in spider-like fashion in its lair for uh, a later nosh. A nosh, yeah. a little later. Yeah. Luke struggles initially to free himself when he wakes before remembering to calm his mind, to tap into the force. And he manages Finally. to pull his lightsaber out of the snowbank free himself, slice the arm off the poor Wampa who's just looking to eat. I mean, it's tough to come by food Awful. in this environment. This and here poor he creature. thought he had chanced upon something nice, and now all of a sudden this happens. Very tough beat. <laughs> Luke staggers out into the cold, which is a tough beat. No one taught Luke how to warm himself mm. in this kind of environment. And he very staggers, rough. collapses, injured and freezing into a snowdrift. And is stirred not by the Wampa returning or a different Wampa mm. coming to eat him, but by 
the blue-tinged visage of old Ben Kenobi. Is that... I wonder if he means... Who on the heels of guiding Luke as a disembodied voice at the end of A New Hope now appears to him as a force ghost, having learned the secrets of immortality from Yoda, who learned from Qui-Gon, whom Obi-Wan and Yoda, we should note, not nitpicking, but nitpicking, both fail to recognize in this film, thanks prequels retconning for that. It's just really tough stuff for Qui-Gon, who gets absolutely dunked on. I know. We can't change the order in which these movies were actually made, but that's one of the moments where you wish you could. Luke! Ben! And though Luke is about to meet his new mentor, Yoda, Obi-Wan, of course, remains his first awakener, his first guide. You will go to the Dagobah system. Dagobah system? There you will learn from Yoda, the Jedi master who instructed me. Whoops. As Luke calls Ben, Ben, we see some of the child from A New Hope, the boy who's afraid to face the great unknown and unsure if he can do it alone. And really, who can blame him? He was yearning for power converters at Tashi Station just three years ago, and now he's communing with the dead on this remote planet where he's helped hide the rebel forces. That's a lot of change. As Luke reaches out for Obi-Wan, the Force spirit fades, and in its place, Han enters the frame. A moment of key visual linking and association here. Han and Obi-Wan, of course, butted heads in A New Hope, unable to align on their views on religion, the Force, luck, Mm -hmm. life, really any of it. But to Luke, they both represent teachers of a sort, albeit very different kinds. Yes. People who possess experience and knowledge that he does not have. Thankfully, Han's smarts keep Luke alive as he slices open his dead Tauntaun's guts with Luke's lightsaber, which, cool, Han holding a lightsaber moment. That's always fun when a non-Force user gets to wield one to shelter Luke inside. The science here does not make sense. The dead animal would not maintain its heat, but alas! (laughs) It would also, like, soak Luke in blood, which you would imagine would be bad. First of all, right, he's got open wounds, so, like, what's getting in Right. Tauntaun bacteria is seeping into the wound. The second he exits the carcass, that's all going to freeze. Right, he's soaked with viscera and blood and who knows what else. Awful. (laughs) Luke is barely coherent, muttering Ben and Dagobah and Yoda. Good reminder, folks, to never tell Luke anything private in case he blabs about it to anyone in earshot in his fevered state after taking a lot of action. Fucked my sister. Raised lips. (laughs) (laughs) She smells good. Doesn't wear underwear (laughs) under the robes. Saw her nipples, Ben. (laughs) (laughs) It is cold on high. It is freezing. After they're rescued by Rogue Two, shouts to Rogue One. Yeah, Shouts! In his snowspeeder, Luke's placed into a space diaper and then into a back-to-tank to heal. The space diaper is base. so rough. It's not. <laughs> oh, my God. It's not flattering. It's so rough. Like, it's not no flattering. Like, no was Mark Hamill. Here's, a, like, here's an can idea. Can I wear any, literally anything else? Here's an idea for medical technologies of the Rebel Alliance. Frost the glass up to the waist. 
Yes. Frost the glass, and then you could just be in there naked, which you should be, because, like, the Bacta should have Heal access everything. to everything. Heal everything. And then that way we don't see your stuff hanging out. This is a great idea. Thank you. Should, you. you should get in touch with the droids immediately. I will. <laughs> well, droids don't understand digni- human dignity. That's one of the issues that people have. How dare anyway, you. <laughs> this is one of the many experiences Luke has in Empire that mimic something mm-hmm. that his father went through. Vader uses his back to tank regularly, mm-hmm. as we see in Rogue One, for both meditation and continued healing. Luke emerges scarred but whole, strengthened by surviving yet another challenge and restoring once again his faith in his friends. That's to you, me junior, Han says, <laughs> with a huge oh, shit-eating grin man. on his face. He looks great. But the grins can't last long because the Imperial pro-droid, prior to its meeting with Han and its self-destruction, has revealed their location to the Empire. Is that Darth Vader's music? Like, literally? Actually, yes, for the first time ever. (laughs) We spoke about Vader's theme at length in our John Williams podcast back a few weeks. Yeah. But in a conversation with Masters, the man himself wonderfully sums up the goal of the tune. Quote, Darth Vader, I think, is one of George's great creations. Yes. He continues, and his music should be certainly militaristic and certainly march and certainly in a minor key and certainly coming at you with a repetitive and powerful declamatory force. The brass should be right in your face, just as Darth Vader is. Mission accomplished. That is so cool. George wanted something else right in our faces. The sweeping set piece. In that same doc, a conversation, George referring to Empire as, quote, the middle part of a single film, it's sort of the middle act, says that he was cognizant of middles tending to be the installment where not a lot happens. Quote, the only thing I had really, this is an incredible quote, the only thing I had really was the revelation that Darth Vader was Luke's father. That's all? Pretty good, George. That's not bad. (laughs) Which is not a lot in terms of, you know, a plot device. Now, obviously, we would quibble with that contention, but it's really, again, illuminating to see how George thought about the structure of the original trilogy and how he viewed Empire's role primarily as the vehicle to move from point A to point C from beginning to end. Part of the film's great surprise comes from many viewers probably entering into it intuitively thinking that way as well and thus being primed by the nature of their expectations for Empire to blow them away. Much like Two Towers, Lord uh-huh. of the Rings. You go in, you think there's no beginning, there's no end, and then you're like, holy shit, Helm's Deep. Helm's Deep, dude. Whoa. Amazing. You enter a middle act thinking, this has no start, no conclusion. It's like a, a leaf to extend yeah. a dining room table. And then you look at that leaf, that middle extension, a little closer, and you realize those are the finest grains of wood in the entire table. Those are stained with the mm-hmm. finest hues, alive with those rich textures and depths, and it awes you. And so because George knew that he was building toward the I am your father crescendo, he structured the rest of the film in somewhat inverted fashion, opening instead of closing with a kind of sprawling set piece that Star Wars and really action films in general typically build toward as a climax, quote from George, so it wouldn't get messed up with the revelations of the parentage of Luke. That's wonderful. It's interesting to consider how this film really, and this trilogy really created the idea of a serialization of IP. Not necessarily the trilogy, but an ongoing story. The middle film that truly would lead to the third, not kind of close the story on its own. This is not really 
something that happened. You know, like there were episodic films like James Bond and stuff. But that was kind of like an anthology series, mm-hmm. you know, different actors coming in at different times. Godfather 2 is its own story that kind of closed a chapter. There was some, It wasn't until this that you're like, here is this space opera that's moving in three parts. And you really have this sense of excitement because you don't know where it's going at the end right. of the movie. Neither um, do the people making it. Nope. <laughs> Vader, in contrast to the uh-huh. somewhat dingier look of A New Hope, practically gleams when we see yes. him. There is not a spot or a speck of dust on his armor. And the back of his helmet is shimmering with almost like a wetness, uh-huh. as bright as the hoth snow. He got a literal glow up here. And though the Emperor will enter our story in the rotted flesh soon, right now Vader looms large, no longer at the end of Tarkin's leash, as Leia said in New Hope, no longer the minion. Uh-huh. The bulk of his minions now are beneath him on a lower deck, almost the orchestra members to his conductor, an yeah. image that the surging score reinforces. Love that. When the droids report reaches Dreadnought Executor Admiral Ozzel. <sighs> Tough stuff coming for this guy. Hand waves. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. Oh, I'm looking for what, you know, I'm not, this is what, you know, we get so many reports. This is what it, what could, but Vader knows immediately that this is it. Yes. That is the system, and I'm sure Skywalker is with them. Uh-huh. Skywalker, meanwhile, is busy prepping for battle by scratching Chewie behind the ear like a dog. Rough. Tough look for our guy Luke, but Chewie seems to like it, and yeah. every, they're all pals now. The yes. moment that Luke shares with Han, back to repairing his ship as all of Echo Base preps for evacuation, is genuinely touching. You okay, kid? Uh-huh. That moment from Han is sweet, and the smiles from Luke, reflecting the real affection that has blossomed between them. Again, the chemistry between these friends is just incredible, and it's so much of the motor that provides the emotional juice for the story as it moves forward. We need these moments yes. on the heels of their ultimately ironclad, but also... Very fraught, uh-huh. competitive relationship yep. in A New Hope to show us how strong their bond has become. They may be competing still for Leia's affections, <laughs> but they're brothers in arms, friends, family. I mean, like family, you know? What's to go between family except a, <laughs> some thin, thin pieces of material like robes and stuff. That's all. The family that we need to believe Luke would do anything to protect when he leaves for Dagobah later in the film. One thing that we have no trouble believing. Yeah. Darth Vader, scary dude. I don't want to I don't want to work for him. It's not good. No. When General Veers tells Vader that there's an energy field up around the rebel base that's strong enough quote to deflect any bombardment. Vader's assessment of Ozil's tactics, which he thinks tipped the base to the Imperial fleet's arrival, yes. is he is as clumsy as he is stupid. He came out of hyperspace too close to the planet. Uh, Ozil! <laughs> Come on, dude. You have failed me for the last time, Admiral, Vader says, while force choking. <laughs> Ozil... Basically via Zoom conference. It's very, very He's tough. doing his killing remotely. Imagine now. being on that Zoom. Just being, holy <laughs> shit. And then promoting his replacement, Captain Piet, as Ozil dies beside him. Quite an insight here into there's the a, Empire's performance review system. There's a great moment when Piet is like, thank you, sir. And then looks down oh, at, at Ozil <laughs> and is kind of like gestures with his face to someone like off screen to like come and just drag Ozil's <laughs> corpse to like the nearest uh, incinerator. Totally. And it is important to see in moments like that how even Vader's own men fear him. Yes. It's 
always kind of a marvel now to return to A New Hope and see the real, the gall with which Admiral Mani mocked the sorcerer's way and ancient religion of the Jedi Order. That's not how people are talking to Vader in this film. And part of Empire Strikes Back's pantheon rank in both the Star Wars canon and the wider cinematic landscape stems from moments like these. We don't talk about them, of course, in the same way that we discuss Luke's trials on Dagobah or Luke's parentage reveal or really even the the wispy wonders of gazing upon Cloud City, but they're crucial. They heavily inform Vader's standing as one of our great villains, a true terror to behold, and a depth of casual rage and hate that becomes all the more tragic to see after we come to understand who Anakin Skywalker was before he put on the mask. Piet's paperwork is not even finished yet. Somebody's (laughs) got to do Piet's paperwork. The ground battle commences on Hoth as the transports attempt to escape before the Imperial incursion, and it is masterfully choreographed, a testament to the inventive spirit that defines so much of Lucas's work in general in Star Wars, in particular in the featurette George Lucas on editing The Empire Strikes Back, 1979. Lucas speaks about his passion for stitching together the final Mm. project. Quote, to me, Editing is what filmmaking is really all about. Making a film is like buying lumber or cutting down trees and making wood out of it, where editing is like actually constructing the house. That's fascinating. He highlighted the Hoth sequence in particular as emblematic of the process with animated storyboards, standing in as placeholders into the final moments so the effects for the ATATs and every beat of the battle could be finalized alongside George working to cut the film together. Imagine that. And the final cut is fabulous. Like, there's never— it is a pretty complex set piece. And there's never a moment where you're like, what's happening? Stuff is happening from the perspective inside the base. Stuff is happening yeah. from the Imperial perspective. Stuff is happening from the perspective of the speeders. And you always know what the plan is. There's that great, super necessary scene where Leia briefs mm-hmm. the pilots. Yeah. Here's what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. The energy shield is going to open up. Transports are going to go through. The ion cannon's going to fire a blast yep. to open the way, and we're going to send two yep. fighters along with them. Yes, you have a question. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. I've got it. And it's just like perfect for orienting the audience in that moment yeah, and setting seamless. the stakes. It's seamless. Luke's leading that snowspeeder charge against the Imperial Walkers, but fucking, his gunner Dak. Fucking Dak. Performing <laughs> as poorly as the Cowboys against the Bears. Dak and Credit. Dak should, <laughs> should have worked for Credit. Credit! Credit! Dak! <laughs> I'm not set! Come, Dak, what are you doing? This is just literal. You, Dak, had, you're, you had one job, Dak. You had literally one job. You're not even flying the speeder. What do you mean you're not set? This is insane. Not set for what? For the rest of his life. Because he's going to die in a second. <laughs> <laughs> the battle is a great showcase for Luke's innovative Truly. spirit in the field. You know, blasters can't cut through the Adat shields. Well, we've got harpoons. We've got tow cables. He has the instincts of a Jedi, even though he's yet to advance in his training beyond his initial lessons. He moves with the grace of a dancer. He sees the court like a point guard. He audibles like the best quarterbacks. He's a player coach, he figuring really it out. Right there in the field, literally on the fly, how to take down the walkers. Maybe old hat for the kid who took down the Death Star, but still really remarkable on the heels of gunning down Womp Rats again just three years ago. Now, that does not mean, of course, that Luke is flawless. His snowspeeder's hit, and he crashes. But in a way, that's when we get to see his real brilliance following another just tragically bad beat for Dak, whose corpse (laughs) is crushed beneath a walker paw. Rough. (gasps) Luke 
grappling Quartz's way up to the walker's guts, slices open its innards with his saber blow, much like Han did with yes. the Tauntaun. His tactics are totally organic, yeah. just like Anakin, his father, out there in a pod race, and eventually, of course, in battle, too. Sometimes you can plan, but sometimes your instincts reveal new possibilities to you in the moment itself. That's such a great observation because I think one of the wonderful themes in Star Wars in this kind of rebel versus imperial dichotomy is the rebels' constant ability, even the necessity for them to get inside Mm -hmm. of the imperial power structures, inside the Death Star, get inside the walker, go through the garbage chute to get within the imperial power structure and destroy it from within. Yes. Vader's blossoming obsession with Luke reveals itself here, too. He's in the base himself, Uh on the ground, in the thick of the battle. And we've seen it from him before, of course. Piloting his TIE fighter (laughs) to attempt to save the Death Star at the end of the new... What? (laughs) What? But each menacing footstep through the tunnels speaks to his intentions. Each thud a reminder of the urgency of his quest. Each emergence around a corner a reminder of the ever-looming specter of his presence and of the revelations that await from his character, the truth hiding just around the bend, just out of view. But he won't remain out of view with Luke for much longer because instead of heading to the rendezvous point like the rest of the rogue squadron soldiers, Luke and R2 heed Obi-Wan's direction and make for Dagobah. Luke, we see, communicate with R2 via binary, also known as droid speak, using his computer readout. One more thing he and Anakin have in common. And in a moment that reflects Luke's decision to break off on his own here, Assume agency and exert his free will. He tells R2, dude, take it easy. I'd uh-huh. like to keep it on manual for a while. I want to fly. Wonderful. Just chill, R2. When Luke and R2 reach Dagobah, Luke is perplexed. No cities. Pop on his scanners. But he's getting, quote, massive life force readings. Yoda, of course. The force. Quote, strong this planet is with the force. Yoda tells Qui-Gon in Voices, the 11th episode of the sixth season of the Clone Wars television show. It's one of the purest places in the galaxy, Qui-Gon replies. Luke and R2 land roughly in the swamps, a fitting representation of the current state of Luke's evolution as a Jedi, able to get where he needs to go, but in rough, unformed, unrefined fashion. In the Dagobah Overview bonus featurette, Dennis Muran, the effects director of photography on the film, explains the importance of this new setting. Quote, Dagobah was just a very important place for the film. Mm -hmm. Luke comes out of that a different person. He goes into the cave to confront his fears. Much more in the cave coming soon. He doesn't want to do it, but he finds out the lack of limits of what he's capable of doing. Now, we haven't seen the cave of evil yet, but immediately upon Luke's landing, it's clear that Obi-Wan directed him to this planet for a reason. The filth of the swamp and the mist in the air clouding Luke's ability to see what's ahead, both on the planet's floor and in real life. R2's submergence in the swamp is a very fitting snapshot. Luke's still thinking blaster first, not with the Force. If you're saying coming here was a bad idea, Luke tells the muck-covered R2 at this point, I'm beginning to agree with you. He's confounded by where he's landed and why, but he also senses on some Force-deep level that, quote, it's like something out of a dream or, I don't know, the connections to the Force and to his father, Darth that Yoda represents. One of my prize toys was the Dagobah set. Amazing. That's awesome. It has Damn. a little swamp you can suck Luke down into. Back on Vader's ship, Piet's effort to speak to his boss treats us to our first 
tantalizing mm. glimpse of Vader without his mask helmet on. Stunning moment the first is time. Is it absolutely jaw-dropping moment when you you get a pretty good look at the yeah. back of his head. We it's see like, his what happened to this oh, guy. Oh, you see his bare, horribly scarred head, and just for a moment. But that glimpse is enough to further fuel the legend. The question of how Vader came to wear his signature suit was one of the central ones early in the days of Star Wars, and the viewers and readers alike have now in 2019 long known the flesh-melting specifics. It was a dizzying unknown at the time. As we learn elsewhere, he takes off his armor in private to meditate and continue to heal him as back to tank. But as we see here on Piet's face, even those within uh, Vader's inner, inner circle yeah. and within the Imperial High Command are not supposed to see him like this. It's a very private thing. And he recedes into both his body shell and the shell encasing him in his chambers as soon as he's through issuing his last order. I want that ship. No excuses. On Dagobah, Luke meets the new mentor at last. After unpacking a soggy X-Wing and setting up a makeshift camp. This place gives me the creeps, he tells R2 while munching on basically what looks like a granola bar. Still, there's something familiar about this place. I don't know. I feel like... Feel like what? Yoda surprisingly pipes up as Luke twirls Blaster out like we're being watched. Why does it feel familiar to Luke? Well, for one, Obi-Wan, his original mentor, has guided him here and will soon surface here as a Force ghost, forging a connection between Luke and this place. But for another, Luke, a Force user who has, you know, some training at this point, obviously, is here to continue his training, is surely sensing the Force surging through Yoda and the Cave of Evil at this fulcrum of Force potency. And Luke will be tested, tempted by the Father, the Emperor, the dark side, and ultimately equal to that test, but the questions inside of him, the pull of the dark inside of him, and of all of us, will meet him in that cave, and maybe calling to him here already upon the moment of arrival. And recall as well what Yoda will say shortly after this. This one a long time have I watched. All his life has he looked away. Yoda has used force vision yes. to monitor Luke, which could mean... Luke is sensing a familiar presence that he's experienced before without realizing what it was. Never his mind on where he was, what he was doing. <laughs> you got some big Yoda voice work looks coming up. Away, put your weapon. Yoda says, poised to use his appearance and the natural inclination one would have to underestimate a creature who looks yes. the way he does as a way to illuminate some essential part of Luke's character. I mean you no harm. He asks why Luke is there. I'm looking for someone. Looking? Found someone you had, I would say. Right. Happy I can. Yes. Uh, I don't think so, Luke says dismissively. <laughs> I'm looking for a great warrior. And Man. an absolutely killer line from Yoda here. A great warrior? Hmm. Wars not make one great. It's amazing. The fact that this exchange is immediately followed by Yoda's theft of Luke's <laughs> power bar and Luke's meltdown. How you get so big eating fruit of this kind <laughs> should in no way obscure what a meaningful idea this yes. is and how remarkable it is that this is our first introduction to Yoda. Yes. First, let's take a moment to appreciate the physical and technological demands of bringing Yoda to life. Yes. According to the Dagobah Overview DVD feature, the set was built five feet above the stage four so that Frank Oz and his team of puppeteers could move and control Yoda from below. And because of that physical separation... Irvin Kirshner said that Frank Oz and Mark Hamill 
often couldn't hear each other through the floor, meaning their sequences had to be precisely and expertly timed, choreographed almost like a dance. On Dagobah Overview, effects director of photography Dennis Murin says of Yoda, quote, there's a leap of faith that you can make and you can willingly make as an audience viewer. If you make the leap of faith, then whatever is presented to you is a wonder. You're not in the movie theater and you totally believe it. And Yoda absolutely Achieve this. What an incredible, incredible way to put it. Before we get to the force-deep importance of Dagobah, we witness a few revealing moments regarding Luke's character, at least at this point in time. Not draping himself in glory at this particular moment. Not at first, at least. No. He shits on Yoda's surroundings. Very dumb. And Yoda's like, butthole slimy, my home misses! (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of heartbreaking. It is. And... More damning than the lack of just common courtesy is Luke's total lack of consideration for the fact that this small, quirky, little green fella could be the being that he seeks. Luke, of course, is not the first to underestimate his ultimate guide. Nope. When first crossing paths, he joins a proud tradition. And George acknowledged this. In a conversation with the Masters, he explained the tradition that influenced Yoda's introduction and much of his initial role, quote, That really comes from a tradition in mythological storytelling, fairy tales, of the hero finding a little creature on the side of the road that seems very insignificant and not very important, who comes out to be the master wizard, the master thing or the guide, the main guide in the movie for the hero. And so I wanted him to be a little insignificant character, something like a frog or something you just didn't pay any attention to. And he turns out to be the most powerful Jedi in the universe. The process for landing on that frog-like design, newly fascinating to Mm. us in all the age of Baby Yoda, began with a Joe Johnston design and this vision from Lucas. Quote, we wanted to make him attractive but strange. So he's actually got proportions very much like a baby and with giant ears. Incredible. (laughs) Literally describing Baby Yoda. The head and face proved tricky until Stuart Freeborn, as Kirshner says in a conversation, put his own face onto the puppet. Quote, it was a self-portrait of Stuart Freeborn. He doesn't like to admit this, but it really is. You gotta Google this and get the visual. It's incredible. And the process for landing on Yoda's unique speech pattern, which we'll discuss more later in the eight, led to an iconic and perhaps formative, they absolutely fucking hated it moment for Lucas, who said in the conversation that Kazan initially hated the choice. This Quote, is too much. The first thing he said is, This backward talk is nonsense. (laughs) I think it could be done better, which he did. He actually made it make sense. George had a reason for structuring Yoda's speech this way. Quote, it made the dialogue more compelling because he had to figure out what he was saying. That way it made basically a lot of philosophical, not very interesting dialogue palatable for 20 minutes. It's it's wild how utilitarian it is when you hear Lucas explain the thinking behind this. It's like watching a magician like pull back Mm -hmm. the curtain and show you the trick. This thing that you're awed by, here's the exact reason. Yeah, we wanted you to pay attention to it, basically. amazing. We'd argue the philosophy on offer is inherently interesting, but this is absolutely illuminating. Truly. As is, of course, our first glimpse of the Emperor, our good friend Sheev himself, mentioned yes, in New sir. Hope. Palpy finally appears here on screen in Empire in hologram form. And the character was originally portrayed by Marjorie Eaton and then voiced by Clive Revel and has since been digitally replaced in the film. Ian McDermott or we riot! Oh, well, that's, you, you got what you wanted. <laughs> it is... Jarring, even after the leash comment in A New Hope, to then, after yes. Vader was so forceful at the beginning of this film, see him kneel here. It's in very front powerful. Of his master and say, What is thy bidding, my master? This great Jedi, this villain, this terror, so subservient here. And the rule of two unfolding in action. 
master and apprentice, always. Though Palpy, as we have discussed before, was more partial to the old rule of one, which we'll discuss more regarding his decisions with Luke in Return of the Jedi. Here, he says, there's a great disturbance in the Force. I have felt it. Vader replies, of course, yes. Never forget. What? What? We have a new enemy. The young rebel who destroyed the Death Star. I have no doubt this boy is the offspring of Anakin Skywalker. Hello. Now, of course, in Revenge of the Sith, after Anakin is reborn as Vader, we see Palpatine tell him that Padme is dead, that he, Anakin, killed her. Lies. Deception. Lies. <laughs> well, from a certain point of view. So, of course, this is quite a shock to Vader here. How could his unborn child, children, really, have been born if their mother perished? Vader's failure to previously sense Luke and Leia is one of the stranger force sensitivity whiffs in the story, but it's also a reminder that the galaxy is a big place Huge. and that Vader's focuses, as we've seen in his comics arc and elsewhere, on trying to resurrect Padme through the dark side locust portal in Mustafar just consumed him. He didn't sense something that he didn't know to look for. How is that possible? He asks here. Search your feelings, Lord Vader, the Emperor says. You know it to be true. The same language, the same messaging, the same guidance that Vader will use at the end of the film with Luke. He could destroy us, the Emperor says. He's just a boy, Vader replies. Anakin, of course, was a boy too when he came into his power and not much older when he fell. Vader's response here speaks less to actually doubting a young person's abilities. I mean, Ahsoka, his young Padawan and clone, mm -hmm. was earned a remarkable amount of his affection and trust. And more ultimately to the love still there somewhere in his heart waiting to surface again. Palpatine was able to bend Anakin to his will because of Anakin's love for Padme and desire to protect her. Yes, hubris, greed, unnatural lust for power and supremacy also played huge pivotal roles. But the desire to keep his family safe through means that no human should possess primarily drove him and will eventually, in a different fashion, drive him again. Obi-Wan can no longer help him, Vader continues. The Force is strong with him, Palpatine replies. The son of Skywalker must not become a Jedi. Skywalker. Sheev's fear and respect yeah. of Luke's mm -hmm. potential here is quite notable. Yeah. Part of this is the nature of Sith doctrines and the perception of balance in the Force. He's afraid of the threat that Luke poses to him and to Darth, but he also recognizes pure talent. He's got a GM's eye. <laughs> And for Palpatine, Five star recruit. And for Palpatine, it's never just about removing a threat. It's about trying to use it. Yeah. Think of the Zillabies oh, from the Clone that poor Wars. creature. A fierce monster awoken and near impossible to tame. What does Sheev seek to do? Not just eliminate the threat. No. To clone it, to uh -huh. use it, to make it. And its shield-like scales a weapon in his campaign. If he could be turned, Vader says, knowing his master well, he would become a powerful ally. Yes, <laughs> he would be a great asset. Can it be done? He will join us or die, Master. Okay, so less of the loving dad, certainly, <laughs> yeah. in the last line. But still, the seed is there. The seed is strong. <laughs> and Sheev's penchant is clear. He'll try to discard Vader for Luke as soon as he can. Listen, Vader's old. He's like, <laughs> he's in the armor. He's all scarred up. Like, Luke's young. He's flecky. He can do flips and stuff. He can move around. Just as we saw him discard Dooku, another fucking, that guy's washed, for Anakin and Sith, and just as he maligned Maul time yes. and again across the wider canning after learning Maul had survived. So mean to Maul. Back on Dagobah again, Yoda continues to test Luke, bringing him to his hut for a meal and a conversation, imploring him to practice patience. 
But Luke is anxious and ungrateful, antsy and unresponsive. And he also horrifyingly samples the root leaf from the communal ladle and then dips it back into the cauldron. They don't understand. Like, did Owen and Peru raise an animal here? I mean, honestly, that's a good point. He grew up on Tatooine at the edge of civilization on a planet ruled by gangsters. Tell that to Biggs. I know. (laughs) R.I.P. R.I.P. Biggie Biggs. (laughs) Why wish you become Jedi, Yoda asks. Mostly because my father, I guess, Luke says. Father. Powerful Jedi was he. Mmm, powerful Jedi. Mm. Luke's response to this contains no curiosity or warmth, only frustration and doubt. Oh, come on. How could you know my father? You don't even know who I am. I don't even know what I'm doing here. We're wasting our time. He throws his utensils. Temper tantrum. Worst moment for him. This is really rough. Yoda sighs in response and then looks off into the distance, assuming a new disposition entirely really shifting into proper gear here. And he's somber as he speaks. I cannot teach him, he says. The boy has no patience. Ah, patience. That key Jedi ideal, that paragon of Jedi excellence that we will eventually see Obi-Wan, Yoda, and Mace and others preach to Anakin so often throughout the prequels. We recognize the responding voice immediately. Is that Ben? He will learn Oof, still patience. Looking good. Luke has devastatingly failed Yoda's test, but Obi-Wan's Undead. faith here is powerful. Faith in Anakin's son after Anakin's fall is meaningful. Very. It speaks to the capacity for forgiveness and to not holding the sin of the father against his son. Yoda's comments make us recall Anakin too. Much anger in him, like his father. I love this scene so much because it's like— it's amazing. You get the feeling too, like somewhere in it, that Yoda is convinced, but he's really putting it on to teach Luke a lesson here. And he has a lot of doubt. Yes. He's made so many mistakes and misjudged so often. There's something great there, too, about the regret that Yoda has after all his failures. I'm looking forward to talking about that a lot in Return of the Jedi. And under it all, Ben Kenobi's theme, the Force theme, the same notes we heard as Luke gazed out towards the binary sunsets in A New Hope. Mm -hmm. Don't look directly at those suns, people. (laughs) What do we, come on. Don't. Look directly at binary signs. Again, Obi Wan age Please. fifty years yes. and nineteen, so I don't think there's a lot of UV don't, protection don't going on on Tatooine. It. The sounds that we associate with hope and possibility, and Luke's desire to explore the great unknown. Do other people believe he is worthy of that? Mm. Was I any different when you taught me? Obi Wan asks, cruelly erasing <laughs> Qui Gon Jinn from history. I'm just going to say it. It's, They've changed enough about the movies. Go back in and add Qui-Gon. I know. If like, we're going to add fucking McClunky, it's, it's let's add in Qui-Gon. When you and Qui-Gon great. taught me. It's a fucking great point. We have to have Han stepping on the most powerful <laughs> gangster in the galaxy's tail, but we somehow can't put in Qui-Gon <laughs> to make all this better. <laughs> no. He's not ready. Well, who can blame Yoda? Luke may not be the most mature young Padawan, but aside from his brief interlude with Obi-Wan, he's never been exposed to anyone willing to teach and guide him. Quite the opposite. He lived the bulk of his life sheltered from the truth of his past and his potential future, even of his actual identity. Mm -hmm. He's baffled by all of this. But comprehension slowly dawns as this wonderful exchange unfolds. Yoda? I'm ready. Ben, I I can be a Jedi. Ben, tell him I'm... And then he hits his head on the top of Yoda's (laughs) hut like a goon. (laughs) It's lecture time. No more facades. No more farces. It's time for the true wisdom from Yoda. For 800 years have I treated Jedi, Yoda says. My own counsel will I keep 
on who is to be trained? That solitary unilateral view is incongruous with Yoda's general collaborative spirit, at least with his fellow Jedi council members. But of course, by this time in his arc, he's alone and has been for a while, living a life of self-exile. The bulk of his fellow masters and other members of the Jedi rank blasted away by Order 66. That makes Luke rare and precious, the future in so many ways. But it also makes Yoda gun-shy, steadfast in his convictions, thinking not only about how those rigid views led him astray before, but focusing on how badly things went, how right he was to doubt. A Jedi must have the deepest conviction, he says, the most serious mind. This one a long time I have watched. There's that line we mentioned earlier. All his life has he looked away to the future, to the horizon. Never his mind on where he was, what he was doing. Adventure, excitement. A Jedi craves not these things. You are reckless. Now, you are reckless. In general, Yoda's Empire Strikes Back showing is peerless. A truly remarkable introduction to an instant establishment of a delightful, important creation and font of wisdom. But he's not perfect either. Those imperfections, as he and Luke will discuss in The Last Jedi, are ultimately part of what makes him so endearing, the elements that make our heroes relatable, fallible, human. But he's not beyond reproach. And lamenting Luke's spirit for adventure and sense of yearning for what might await is tantamount to dismissing Luke's humanity. Youth cannot know how age thinks and feels, Dumbledore tells Harry (laughs) in Order of the Phoenix, but old men are guilty if they forget what it was to be young. And I seem to have forgotten lately. And here, talk that shit, Albus Dumbledore. <laughs> here, Yoda has talk your as shit. Well. <laughs> Thankfully, despite what the Tatooine sun damage would have you believe, old Ben is not that old, and he recalls. So is I, if you remember. He's too old. Yes, too old to begin the training. Again, Yoda's almost nine hundred. Like maybe don't <laughs> call someone else too old. Luke's response to that is really heartbreaking, but I've learned so much, so much longing in his voice. Remember how he craved not so many moons ago to join the Academy to escape Tatooine, and now he's commander and the rebel forces, the hero of the Battle of Yavin, a Jedi by birth and skill alike, and arriving at the doorstep of his destiny, a destiny, crucially, that he can choose, only to have someone tell him that he can't cross through is worse than not knowing in the first place, far worse. Will he finish what he begins, Yoda asks. I won't fail you, Luke vows. I'm not afraid. What does Yoda say? You will be. <sighs> you will be. I don't know, chills running down my body oh, when God. he said that. The truest tests in the war and his family in the cave and himself are yet to come. All right, 2 p.m. Jedi, you ready for Dagobah workout? Are you guys fired up? Here we go. We're going to run through the swamps. Everybody ready? High fives on the way in. Let's go. It's time for Jedi CrossFit. Tank top and all. Luke swings on vines, backflips, runs through the swamp as Yoda claws, <laughs> piercing Luke's oh flesh. I hope everyone got onto all of their back. necessary vaccinations. <laughs> Advice raining down on Luke's ears. Jedi's strength flows from the Force, but where the dark side. Anger, fear, aggression, the dark side of the force, are they? In a conversation, Lawrence Kazan says of Yoda, you're talking on some basic tenets of wisdom in the world that a hundred different religions have come to on their own. And I think it was brilliant of George to know that this story was about those basic principles. It's interesting. 
Here in this moment, those words are so similar to the ones that Yoda will reinforce to Luke in Return of the Jedi and eerily similar to the message Yoda tries to impart to Anakin. As he dispenses this guidance here, he knows more fully than ever the truth of these words and the fragility of what they seek to spare. The walking reminder of what it is carrying him through the swamp right now. Easily they flow, quick to join you in a fight. If once you start down the dark path, forever will it dominate your destiny. Consume you it will, as it did Obi-Wan's apprentice. Always, Luke and Anakin are connected by their name, by their skills, by their ties to those around them. But the differentiator until Anakin makes his way back is the choices that they make. Mm -hmm. Luke is knowledgeable, but not eager. Curious, but not greedy. He asks, crucially, Mm-hmm. Is the dark side stronger? No. Right. No. Quicker. Easier. More seductive. But how am I to know the good side from the bad? You will learn when you are calm, at peace, passive. And Jedi uses the force for knowledge and defense, never for attack. Remember what we discussed in our Phantom Menace pod, how important it was to George Lucas for Anakin to be pure of heart. Mm-hmm. There lurked beneath the surface always the thirst for full control. But he was a sweet and kind and well-intentioned boy. Luke is, interestingly, a tad less sweet, a Mm -hmm. tad less kind, but he's more grounded as a result, more balanced, more prone to handle the swings. The nature of these exchanges recall John Williams' words in a conversation as he explained how he found Yoda's theme. Quote, his character and his speech suggested, I guess to me, the innocence of real wisdom, true wisdom that Yoda seemed to always offer was reduced to essentials and to true simplicity. When Yoda tells a just remarkably sweaty Luke to clear his mind and rest, what about shower? Luke senses that something is amiss. I feel cold. Death. That place is strong with the dark side of the force, Yoda says. A domain of evil it is. In you must go. So much for that rest, Luke. Luke asks what's inside. Only what you take with you. One of the best lines it's an incre- of all time. Incredible line. Chills. Also one of the best ideas in the series. Yes, absolutely. Hallmark, the primacy of looking inward. Your name, your family, your blood, your yes. home, your destiny. None of those things, not one of them, is who you are. That's right. In The Hero with a Thousand Faces, in The Road to Trials, Campbell writes, quote, And so it happens that if anyone in whatever society undertakes for himself the perilous journey into the darkness by descending, either intentionally or unintentionally, into the crooked lanes of his own spiritual labyrinth, he soon finds himself in a landscape of symbolic figures, any of which may swallow him. This is Luke's spiritual labyrinth. Yoda tells Luke that he won't need his weapons, but Luke takes them anyway, not ready to leave them behind yet, not understanding at all the nature of the foe he'll face, or the uselessness of physical weapons, physical tools against the enemy inside of himself. Quote, I stood before a dark cave wanting to go in, was the dream of a patient at the beginning of Mm -hmm. his analysis, Campbell wrote, of Dr. Geza Roheim. And I shuddered at the thought that I might not be able to find my way back. I saw one beast after another. Caves have long occupied a role, a central role in myth, culture, philosophy. We could give you countless examples. Think of Plato's allegory of the cave and consideration Mm. of enlightenment or Zeus's hidden upbringing inside such a shelter. On and on the list goes. The cave on Dagobah, the dark side virgins, is a personalized trial that preys on each person's fears and makes them feel cold, sense death. It is a boggart 
and a Dementor rolled into one. Yoda knows this because he has entered it himself during the Clone Wars under Qui-Gon's Force Ghost instruction. And in there, he faced his fears of failing the Jedi Order Mm. by glimpsing many of the events surrounding the impending Order 66 plot. Luke enters alone, but for the fear that is his companion. (sighs) He walked into a nightmare, and then Vader is there. First the breath, then the shadow, and then... The film stock does something interesting here where it's the speed slows down and takes on a very a nightmarish quality. Incredible. And he's there, this whole hulking, dark, grim splendor of him casting Luke back on his heels as he approaches. And Man. Luke knows in some bone-deep way that this isn't real. And we know as well from the way that mm-hmm. that change of speed signals to us. It's as real as his fear, and that can feel like the realest thing in the world. And they both draw their lightsabers, red against blue. Father and son, though Luke, of course, doesn't know this. The vision, this quest, indicates that Luke does know it on Mm -hmm. some level, that as Vader will soon tell him, he just needs to search his feelings to know that it's true. Father or not, Vader represents the thing Luke fears, becoming the thing Yoda is warning him against. But it's more than that. Vader is the worst part of Anakin, the dark that beats the light. He represents, in turn, the worst part of Luke. As Luke battles this demon, he cuts off his head, only to look down at the helmet and see his own face staring out of the helmet. A vision of what was for Anakin, a vision of what could be for Luke if he allows it, a vision of their link and the revelation that awaits. Luke is Anakin's son. They are the Skywalkers. In The Fellowship of the Ring, Galadriel asks Frodo to look into the mirror. Mm -hmm. He asks what he will see. Even the wisest cannot tell, she says. For the mirror shows many things, things that were, things that are, and some things that have not yet come to pass. The cave of evil is doing that for Luke, just as the other dark side caves and fulcrums in the story do for other characters. The mirror cave beneath Octo for Rey, the locust beneath Fortress Vader on Mustafar for Anakin. Interestingly, Luke shares the Dagobah cave trials with someone he failed to keep from the dark side, Kylo, Mm. who in the comics goes to Dagobah with Snoke to face his fears. Inside, he faces visions of Luke and his parents, and while he battles and slays his uncle, he's notably not able to kill his parents. Rather than face Snoke's wrath and his own shame, he simply destroys the cave. It's also like a wonderful embodiment of that thing that we talk about a lot, which is in seeking to vanquish evil, Mm-hmm. It's very easy to become that evil that you seek to Absolutely. destroy. Absolutely. It's always just around that next bend of shadow. Return, we will. After a word from our sponsors. Visual Star Wars is presented by State Farm. State Farm agents know that sometimes life throws everything at you at once. Like a fender bender when you're already late. When it comes to auto and home insurance, State Farm agents are there for you. Talk to one of our 19,000 State Farm agents via text over the phone, in person, or using the State Farm app. Find one today at statefarm.com. And now back to Minjima. Luke's training continues and his prep for the Jedi presidential fitness test includes doing handstands in a swamp <laughs> while Yoda balances on his foot and whispers, use the force. Galaxy's version of Alabama's mental conditioning coach giving him that edge. Not this year. Yoda's guiding Luke to understanding, using his force powers in a new way. He's levitating stones. Feel it, Yoda says. And we feel it too, these chill-inducing moments, the magic of it all. But as the X-Wing sinks, and R2 beeps in notice, Luke loses his focus. Concentrate, Yoda yells. But Luke can't. It's one of the areas where he's still lacking as a Jedi. Yeah. And as a result, all the more relatable to us, It happens actually. to a lot yes, of guys. he's not a— <laughs> 
It happens to a lot of guys. You're trying to get it. Oh, you're trying to get it up and out. Trying and to levitate that stone. And, you, and sometimes you can't. Sometimes it's not there. <laughs> You've got a little green frog yelling at you, and you just lose it sometimes. <laughs> He's not a machine. Not able to turn off his emotions and his intrigues. He's a person. The X-Wing, though, will be another test. As Luke laments its forever loss in the swamp, Yoda sees once again the stubborn conviction yes. of youth that he wants and needs to guide Luke beyond. Possibility comes in so many forms. Luke possesses it in droves when it comes to gazing out at the suns or thinking about his own future, but challenges still seem like walls to him, not hurdles. So certain are you? Yoda asks. Always with you, it cannot be done. Hear you nothing that I say? His disappointment is supreme in this moment. Not the judgmental dismissal of their initial meeting, but a real lament here. The real lament of seeing someone that you've invested in and believed in let you down by failing to believe in themselves. Luke thinks that moving an X-Wing is another task entirely for moving a stone, and Yoda, of course, knows better. Connected as all things are by the Force. Only different in your mind. You must unlearn what you have learned. Incredible line. All yeah. right, Luke says. I'll give it a try. No, try not. Do or do not. There is no try. Possibly Yoda's most famous line. Uh, probably, certainly I think one of the probably, most famous lines the in the film. Yeah. But interestingly, apparently not only Sith steal an absolute. Yes. <laughs> this is obviously, again, a signature moment in the story. And Yoda's frustration is earned and sincere. His conviction is, too, given what he's lived through. He has seen that trying without committing fully is not enough to suppress evil. But the fame of that line masks its insufficiency as a guiding principle. Trying really trying is actually all that we can ever ask. We can't actually control the future or the outcomes of our actions, but we can control whether we care and what choices we make. In Half-Blood Prince, Harry reflects, quote, it was important, Dumbledore said, to fight and fight again and keep fighting, for only then could evil be kept at bay, though never quite eradicated. Choosing to fight, choosing to try is the real victory. Still, Yoda knows that the clock is ticking and knows that he has to penetrate Luke's ingrained behaviors and his biases. When Luke fails to get it up despite attempting to do so, <laughs> his disappointment is supreme. I can't. It's too big. Size matters not, Yoda says. Incredible innuendo there speaking to <laughs> Speaking to men everywhere. <laughs> Look at me. And this is, of course, a central yes. fantasy tenet. The reason that Frodo is the one who brings the ring through the gates of Mordor and into the fires yes. of Mount Doom. Any person, no matter how small, no matter their circumstances, can make a difference in the world, can be the hero. I think of that line from A Game of Thrones, mm -hmm. first book in the Song of Ice yes. and Fire Theory, when Tyrion's shadow is cast yes. out Ugh. into the courtyard of Winterfell. When he opened the door, the light from within threw his shadow clear across the yard. And for just a moment, Tyrion Lannister stood tall as a king. Incredible. <laughs> Instant tears every time. Ah! Judge me by my size, do you? Yoda continues. And well, you should not, for my ally is the Force, and a powerful ally it is. How's that working out for you in your swamp hut exile, my dude? Anyway, <laughs> I mean, the thing about Yoda in this setting is he's learned a lot. Yes. He's ruminated on his face. Yes, he's got that cheroot-like clarity yeah. there. Life creates, makes it grow. Its energy surrounds us, binds us. Luminous beings we are. Not this crude matter. You must feel the force around you. Here, between you, me, the tree, the rock, everywhere. Yes, even between the land and the ship. You want the impossible. It's impossible. Then he slinks off and 
sinks to the ground. Luke doesn't have the faith that he needs to lead and win. Not yet. But Yoda knows that. And he knows. As Kevin Garnett once said, anything is possible. He closes his eyes and reaches out his hands and lifts the X-wing with something like ease, bringing it out of the swamp and then in a wonderful flourish, flying it right over to Luke and setting it daintily down at his feet. Try to remember what it was like when Uh, you first saw this and the music soared Uh and you watched it fly, watched the ship fly like magic, all the swamp water running off of it. Your amazement reflected in R2's response where he's bouncing on his struts and going... We return to these stories so many times and can appreciate them anew always, but upon first viewing, this is a moment of awe and inspiration for viewers as well as for Luke. A revelatory insight into what the Force can be. I don't believe it, he says. That is why you fail. Tough. Tough performance review there. Luke begins to improve and grow, even levitating R2. Yoda says as Luke works, calm, yes, through the Force, things you will see other places, the future, the past, old friends long gone. Nice Force ghost connection there. But as Yoda's saying this, Luke begins to experience just such a vision of his friends in danger, and he shouts out for Han and Leia, says he saw a city in the clouds, Bespin. They were in pain. It is the future, you see. Future? Will they die? Difficult to see. Always in motion is the future. Now, this is a recurring idea in Star Wars and one of the best ways to reconcile the paramountcy of choice with the presence of destiny. Luke, of course, wants to go to his friends, needs to help them, needs to try to save them, and Yoda knows it's another test, a test that takes many forms. Decide you must how to best serve them. If you leave now, help them you could, but you would destroy all for which they have fought and suffered. Yoda implores Luke to stay and complete his training, but Luke cannot forget what he's seen. And then Obi-Wan manifests, not just as a voice, but again as a corporeal force ghost, to tell Luke the same as Yoda. He doesn't know that Han and Leia will die. Even Yoda cannot see their fate. Well, like, no shade, but Yoda yeah. couldn't see that Palpatine was Darth Sidious when he was sitting two blocks away on Coruscant. Yeah. So I'm going to hard pass on that sales right, pitch for me. Listen. That's a no for me. That's, that's, a, that's a hard no for me, dog. <laughs> I can help them, Luke says. I can feel the force. But you cannot control it, Obi-Wan responds. This is a dangerous time for you when you will be tempted by the dark side of the Force. I mean, it's such a great encapsulation of what it's like to be at a certain point of your in your life when you're young and eager and really kind of your best weapon in a way is not really knowing like how not hard— knowing any better. Not knowing any better totally. about the challenges you face. You just don't really understand them because if maybe if you did, you'd be like, well, I can't do this. I can't even try. Yeah. Right. It's a great point. Obi-Wan also, of course, knows— Not only that, but Anakin knows Vader, knows what reveals and temptations await. He knows he's his father. The cave, Yoda says. Remember your failure at the cave. And Obi-Wan tells Luke unambiguously, it is you and your abilities the Emperor wants. And that is true. Obi-Wan and Yoda know the enemy, know their ways, know that Luke is likely heading into the spider's web. And in that sense, they're right to tell him not to go. A trap awaits on Bespin. Han and Leia and Chewie and 3PO are being tormented in order to lure Luke to their defense. But, but, as Luke notes, that's why I have to go. He's like Harry in this way, unwilling to let others die for him, so aware of the way that peril drapes itself over other people just because of their proximity to him. And even though Obi-Wan and Yoda are right about what awaits, it doesn't make Luke going wrong. He's following his heart. He's trying to do what's right, the good thing. What is being a Jedi really, if not that? If not being willing and able to fight to protect people? 
Now, it might play as undisciplined, but it's ultimately a sign of Luke's humanity and a huge part of what makes him such a worthy mm-hmm. hero. Anakin, of course, shares that with Luke, and that is a complex comparison because it's part of what Yoda and Obi-Wan fear here, given that Anakin's heart is part of what led him astray. But what's the flip side of that, as we've talked about so much? It's yet another reminder that the Jedi strictures on attachment are part of the problem, not part of the solution. Why is wanting to protect the people you love a bad thing? Luke, I don't want to lose you to the Emperor the way I lost Vader, Obi-Wan says, teasing well the impending Vader father reveal. Luke says they won't, and Yoda dispenses one final bit of wisdom. Stop, they must be. On this all depends. Only a fully trained Jedi Knight with the Force as his ally will conquer Vader and his Emperor. (laughs) Now, given their whole slew of fully trained Jedi, Mm -hmm. absolutely failed. Shit the bed. In ignominious (laughs) fashion. To even delay the Emperor's plans. A Kendall Roy-esque bed shitting. (laughs) We're not sure what Yoda is basing this on. But Yoda is worried about something very specific. And of course, something Luke and Vader might specifically share. The instinct to rush. The refusal to practice patience. If you end your training now, if you choose the quick and easy path as Vader did, you will become an agent of evil. Patience, Obi-Wan emphasizes. And sacrifice Han and Leia, Luke asks, if you honor what they fight for, yes, which is a tough look for Yoda. Really? Yoda is absolutely showing a ruthlessness that I think belies what we often think about Yoda. Yes. Now, sacrifice is a key pillar of any fantasy story, but the heart of it comes from being willing to sacrifice one's something or something one holds dear when it's the only way, the selfless way, the embrace of that which others fear. Luke is still beginning his journey. He's not ready for the challenge that awaits him, and we will see that in in detail. But no amount of training would make him. You can't anticipate life, which, of course, is also what Yoda and Obi-Wan are telling him. If you choose to face Vader, Obi-Wan says, you will do it alone. I cannot interfere. It would always have to be this way, though, for Luke to truly cross the threshold, truly achieve apotheosis. Luke vows to return and then sets off. Alone now, Yoda says to Ben, Told you I did. Reckless is he. Now matters are worse. That boy is our last hope, Ben replies. And the scene slowly begins to fade. And then Yoda replies, No, there is another. Yeah, Ben, like you didn't know that? (laughs) You were there. You were fucking there, Ben. What are you talking about? What do you mean there is? You watched? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. You watched the birth, Ben. (laughs) Come on, Benjamin. You're like, oh, you're going to take that one, give her to Bail Organa, shelter her in secret on another planet. Come on. I'll take this one to Anakin's old house and give him his name. Cool? A few too many Mai Tais under the binary suns for my guy, Ben Kenobi. I don't remember owning a droid. Fried he is. <laughs> so as we've outlined in our New Hope pod and here, the choice to make Luke Leia's sister certainly came later. But the plan to introduce a sibling, as we see here, was there. There is, however, another interpretation, albeit not one, that seems to align with Yoda's general feeling toward the guy. Did he mean Anakin? Mm-hmm. The ultimate fulfillment of the Chosen One prophecy and the restoration of balance to the Force. George Lucas, as he revealed in a conversation, had a different motive. 
making the audience afraid. This Quote, is savage. We've got a hero. What you want to do is make him vulnerable. You want to say, we could kill this guy. So invest in the struggle. Because it's not one of these movies where he's just going to walk away. And when I said there is another, it basically signaled to the audience that I could kill Luke. I hate him anyway. I really hated him. I could kill him. I killed Obi-Wan. It makes it more exciting for the movie. And he's, that's just storytelling 101. Absolutely. Threaten the hero. stuff from George. The trap that awaits on Bespin presents itself to us in really heart-pounding fashion. A sliding door revealing Vader and Boba. Boba, of course, a hired gun introduces a nod to the samurai and Western influences. Check out Jason's A New Hope Jedi Temple on the Western in Star Wars, if you haven't yet. A character who was first created, actually, for the animated TV special and then added into the film, says Lucas, because he was just so cool. Stormtroopers, everyone is here on Bespin. The Empire, Luke's friends, Invader's clutches. Luke heading there by Vader's design and Vader's waiting for his son, yes, but also for, as he puts it, the Emperor's prize. His path to choosing the light is still very much unfolding. It's not like Anakin Skywalker's back yet. Luke's path to clarity is unfolding too. He's barely able to snoop upon arrival before Boba spots him and sends a blaster bolt his way. And amid the ruckus, Chewie and Leia spot him and get off a roar and a message of warning. Luke, don't. It's a trap. Roar! Luke pursues cautiously and with a gate closing and cutting off R2, ultimately alone. And then everything changes. The colors from the bright white halls to the bleak palette of the carbon freezing chamber. The sound from the blaster bolts and pomp to the heavy silence of anticipation. The tension is as thick as a tauntaun's pelt. And then the sublights kick in and Vader's breathing sounds. The force is with you, young Skywalker. But you are not a Jedi yet. Holy shit! What unfolds from here is utterly riveting. Still to date, the best duel in all of Star Wars. A masterclass in movie making. Yes. And an elemental step in Luke's hero's journey, Anakin's redemptive arc, and the entire Skywalker saga. Luke walks to meet him, unsheathing his lightsaber with admirable courage. Vader's old lightsaber, though Luke doesn't know that yet. Vader activates his new one, fueled by a red bleeding kyber crystal and the electric blue and the red flash across the mist. Kyber! Popping in the darkness. Luke is fearless and bold, but clearly overmatched. As Yoda said, he has not, after all, been fully trained. And Vader's skill is supreme. Still, Luke shows that he's learned some things. And Dad is impressed. You've learned much, young one, Luke boasts. You'll find I'm full of surprises. (laughs) It's a nice bit of stage setting irony for what awaits. Oh, yeah. Luke loses his saber and gets pushed down the stairs, but he doesn't quit. Your destiny lies with me, Skywalker. And Anakin knows all about destiny. Obi-Wan knew this to be true. And Vader thinks he's won when Luke falls into the carbon freezing chamber all too easy. And then he force pulls the switch. But Luke won't quit. All that CrossFit on Dagobah (laughs) has taught Luke a few crafty moves. He force jumps to safety amid dad's, perhaps you are not as strong as the emperor thought, shit talking. But then when he sees his Uh son clinging to some tubes Mm -hmm. hanging from the ceiling, he says, impressive, most impressive. Thanks, Pops. Luke summons his saber back to him. Obi-Wan has taught you well. And then the layers here are so fascinating to unpeel. Obi-Wan, of course, taught Anakin well, too. Can Luke do something that Anakin couldn't? You have controlled your field. Now, 
Release your anger. Only your hatred can destroy me. Recall Palpatine's words to Anakin and Sith when Anakin said he wanted to kill him. I know you would. I can feel your anger. It gives you fuckers. <laughs> Makes you stronger. The Emperor will say something similar to Luke in Return of the Jedi when trying to bend him to his will. We see Luke's anger in this moment as he charges, pushing Vader back, causing him to fall. And the ensuing sequence plays out like a horror movie, a genre-bending game of cat and mouse. This sequence, along with Luke's trials on Dagobah, are at the heart of the film's reputation as this darker, more mature affair. Cloud City is in the sky, yes, but it feels as though Luke has entered the cave of evil yet again, descended into its depths. Mm. What has he brought with him this time? What revelations await? Well, Vader sends Luke tumbling through a broken window out into a shaft, and Luke pulls himself up to the platform where he will soon hear the words that alter the course of his life and the galaxy's fate. And as he moves forward, bruised and battered, Vader meets him again. And he cuts through Luke with ferocity. This is not the tap-and-poke duel that we saw between Vader and Obi-Wan in A New Hope. Daddy's here to put the smack down now. This is passion and purpose unleashed. He pushes Luke back out over the emergency platform. You are beaten. It is useless to resist. Don't let yourself be destroyed as Obi-Wan did. But what do heroes do? Harry walked around the tombstone in the graveyard. John pulled his sword as the Bolton cavalry charged. Heroes don't quit, even when all seems lost. Luke rises and fights. Even making contact with Vader's yeah. armor, showing that he's vulnerable. The protective— That's such a, that's such a thrilling like, moment. Oh. The first time you're like, oh my God! Oh, and kind of smokes. Yeah. The protective Sith shell around that— Still human yoke with him. Vader responds <gasps> by cutting off Luke's sword hand, just, of course, as Dooku cut off Anakin's mm -hmm. sword hand. Back in Attack of the Clones, one more link between father and son. Here we go. There is no escape, Vader tells him. Don't make me destroy you. Luke begins to scooch back onto the platform, a tight rope act in the air. Hanging on with one hand, Vader's disposition softens. Luke, you do not yet realize your importance. You've only begun to discover your power. Join me and I will complete your training. With our combined strength, we can end this destructive conflict and bring order to the galaxy. Anakin, as we saw in the prequels, genuinely believed that he could fix what ailed the galaxy. His hubris causing him to mistake tyranny for good intentions. He's giving Luke a version of the pitch he once gave to Padme, rule the galaxy with me. It's like the quote that's often attributed to the Celtic leader Calcagus when looking upon the way the Roman Empire would wage war, he said, they make a desert and they call it peace. Mm. This is what Darth Vader thinks is order, is oppression, bringing peace and stability to the galaxy at the point of a lightsaber. Huh. I'll never join you! And now here we are. Here it comes. One of the most yes. stunning cliffhangers and shocking reveals in movie history. Maybe the reveal yep. in movie history? If you only knew the power of the dark side, Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. He told me enough! <laughs> Did he? Inching away from Vader, <laughs> shrinking down behind this antenna-like structure so that he fittingly looks childlike in yes. Vader's looming image. Yes. He told me you killed him. No. I am your father. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, dun, no. dun, dun. No, that's not true. Nah, 
that's impossible! <laughs> Search your feelings. You know it to be true. And Luke does. He can feel it. He can sense it. The force connects them. They're entwined. But you might well be thinking, did George Lucas know it? Yeah. At least when he first set out to write Star Wars, Lucas has, in more recent years, said that he always intended Vader to be Luke's father. He has, for instance, said, quote, when I wrote the original Star Wars screenplay, I knew that Darth Vader was Luke Skywalker's father. The audience did not. <laughs> they would have hated that had they known. <laughs> I always felt that this revelation when and if I got the chance to make it would be shocking. Indeed, you were right. But a host of contemporary evidence suggests otherwise. The main piece comes from the first draft of the Empire script, which we'll talk about more in the eighth and which was based on a rough outline that Lucas had provided. Two key moments stand out in that draft. In the first, on Dagobah, Luke meets a Force ghost version of his father Anakin, which means that his father was dead <laughs> by this point. <laughs> and Force Anakin does a few additional things in their conversation that all point to his being different than Vader. First, he tells Luke that he has a sister who is across the galaxy, so there's more evidence regarding Leia, Quote, when I saw the Empire closing in, I sent you both far away for your own safety, far apart from each other, which, of course, we know is not something that Darth did. Two, he references Darth Vader. So he's either not Darth or mm. has started speaking in the third person. And then three, he uses his lightsaber as a sort of sword to swear Luke into the Jedi Order. And when he does so, he says the Force should only be used for good. Also, later in the script draft, Vader taunts Luke by saying, you don't stand a chance against me, no more than your father did anyway. That line would match Obi-Wan's from A New Hope when he told Luke that Vader killed his father. And if Lucas didn't know yet that Vader and Anakin were the same person, there wouldn't have been a problem with writing that line, which, of course, ultimately necessitated that tangly, from a certain point of view, logic, which we'll talk about in Return of the Jedi. Earlier this year, Screen Rant provided even more supporting evidence writing that the annotated screenplay says, quote, The notion of Vader being Luke's father first appeared in the second draft. Vader became attracted to the dark side while he was training to become a Jedi. He became a Jedi and killed most of the Jedi Knights. Ben fought Vader and pushed him down a nuclear reactor shaft, which, of course, never kills anybody. <laughs> one, of his like <laughs> one of his arms was severed, and Ben believed that he had killed Vader. In fact, Vader survived and became a mutant. Man, that's some mall-esque shit yeah. right there. That's basically how it happened in the prequels with a river of lava replacing the reactor shaft. Oh, and the urban legend that Darth Vader means dark father in another language is false. This in is fact, incredible. Lucas said around the time of the first movie, he tried out other alternatives on the name before Vader <gasps> sort of peered in my head one day. I had lots of Darth this and Darth that and Dark Lord of the Sith. The early name was actually Dark Water. <laughs> then I added lots of last names, Vader's and Wilson's and Smith, and I just came up with a combination of Darth and Vader. Darth Smith? Darth Wilson. Is like, <laughs> oh, my God! Darth Wilson is here. Darth if you go to confront Darth Wilson. <laughs> oh, my God. Incredible. Governor Tarkin. I should have known I'd find you holding Wilson's leash. It's like a mashup of Empire and Castaway. I can't get over it. If Darth Wilson or Darth Smith saw this film in theater, at their home, anywhere, it would have been treated to the same otherworldly shock, ultimately, as all moviegoers. In the Cloud City overview, Dennis Murin said, quote, it was fun looking at the Empire Strikes Back script because I don't even think we had an opportunity to read it. 
because the ending was such a secret. That's right. The people making the movie didn't know about this. In a conversation, Lucas said that only three or four people knew about the twist in advance. And Kasdan has discussed having to write another scene so that the false one could be circulated from Kasdan. Quote, I've written a lot of movies. I don't think there's ever flex. been a scene. Yeah, it's an incredible flex. I don't think there's ever been a scene with quite as much yeah. weight on it as that one. George Lucas explained in the same doc that he consulted psychologists because he was so concerned about the effect of the reveal and the general conclusion this of the is, film and how it would impact children seeing it. This is— Would they hate I, it? I, I file this under—what's uh, <laughs> Chris Ryan's term? Director bullshit? <laughs> this is amazing. There's no denying, of course, the effect that the reveal had on Luke, nor the effect that atonement with the father and the abyss yeah. has on the hero. As Campbell writes, quote— the problem of the hero going to meet the father is to open his soul beyond terror to such a degree that he will be ripe to understand how the sickening and insane tragedies of this vast and ruthless cosmos are completely validated in the majesty of being. The hero transcends life with its peculiar blind spot and for a moment rises to a glimpse of the source. He beholds the face of the father, understands, and the two are atoned. That sounds like Return of the Jedi. Yeah. Imagine sitting there in a pre-internet world and having oh to wait God. three years it's until you find out what happens next. Luke, Vader continues here, you can destroy the Emperor. He has foreseen this. It is your destiny. Join me and together we can rule the galaxy as father and son. And they will, in Return of the Jedi, protect the galaxy as father and son, destroy the Emperor together. TBD on that until a Rise of Skywalker. Uh, yeah. Here, Luke's response is to throw himself over the edge, down into the shaft, fearing the darkness more than the prospect of death, more than the prospect of living to be Darth Vader's son and trusting his Force knowledge to save him. He makes his way into an air duct but nearly falls through the sky, catching an antenna with his legs to save himself. In his peril, he calls it, Leia, hear me. And his sister does, Luke. That reveal is pending Leia, in return. Me. Fuck me. Leia, blow me, blow me, my dick is throbbing, Leia, <laughs> Leia, oh my god, your nipples, <laughs> that reveal is pending in Return of the Jedi, but this is a chill-inducing scene, both for their relationship and for <laughs> Leia's force powers, and also for, yes. for the evolution of Luke as a force-sensitive, this is, He's doing Huge. something new. He's able to send a message to someone else yes. using the Force. They return for Luke despite the very real danger. He sought to rescue them, and they're now doing the same for him. Luke clings to Leia like a life raft as she tends to his wounds. Vader and the Imperial fleet are in pursuit, and the Falcon's hyperdrive deactivated, as we realized Vader had planned all along. Mm -hmm. And naturally, although we have to take it with a grain of salt because he is the narrator, R2 <laughs> comes to the rescue. I believe it. I mean, sure. <laughs> As the ship repairs unfold in rapid fashion, Vader calls out to his son, Luke. Mm. And Luke, Chill. this is a really underrated and absolutely stirring scene when Luke just instinctively says, Father. Oh, my God. Re it's incredible. It's amazing. Already fully accepted <sighs> what he has been told. Yoda told him to unlearn what he's learned, but he can't unlearn this. He can't unlearn the truth of who he is. Nope. Son, come with me. Ben, Luke says, why didn't you tell me? Oh, that's agonizing. Revelations cast a new light, but they also cast new questions, new mysteries, new uncertainties. Luke, Vader says, 
again, it is your destiny. And Luke looks agonized. Ben, why didn't you tell me? So the Falcon slips away. Thanks, R2. Vader's maddened breaths fill the flight deck. It's the perfect way to end a thriller, Dennis Murin said. And you really want to come back and see the third one. Yeah, you do. (laughs) And as Luke and his new hand, Leia, R2, and 3PO gaze out into the stars in a framing, the ending, the attack the clones will mirror, it's clear that he's absolutely right. Absolutely right. So one thing about this movie is that Han and Leia are separate from Luke for a lot of it. So let's very quickly talk about Han and Leia for a few minutes. It's not necessarily a surprise to see Han on Echo Base on Hoth. He made his choice and staked his allegiance by returning to Yavin to help Luke. What? And Leia at the end of A New Hope. But it does still spark some sense of relief. What? What? A notable reflection of our hard-won faith in Han's commitment to the cause and his hard-won faith in that cause himself. There's nothing surprising, however, about how really fantastic he looks it's in his just, outerwear. It's like, incredible. It should the, not be allowed. The, the wardrobe he gets in this is incredible. He's got, so remarkable. he's got the parka. It's remarkable. Which is great. It's like the Canada goose, like the thousand dollar parka uh, that's like out there. You see like some hipsters in like in New York wearing. It's, it, it's like he had that before that. And then he's got like the Harrington jacket, like the, the commander strong, solo yes. jacket. That's just like incredible. And we're not the only ones thinking this, of course. Our first glimpse of Leia in this film comes as she's glimpsing Han, drinking him in like a tall glass of Jawa juice. And hey, do you recall what we were saying like 10 seconds ago about Han's presence being a refreshing surprise? Well, about that. As soon as he's back in the base, he tells General Reekin, General, I gotta leave. I can't stay anymore. (laughs) After all this time, now is apparently the moment to go and try and square things with Jabba the Hutt just because he ran into a bounty hunter on Ord Mantel. Come on, dude. Terrible. Like, you're in the middle of a war, and Terrible. you're going to go pay—like, stop it. Also, like, can the rebels give you an adva- credit advance? Can we advance some, like— That's a great question. Can they just wire Jabba some money and, like, not have you have to leave right now? Tremendous point. Anyway. <laughs> and then Rika's like— a Maybe the answer is no if they're sending Luke I guess and it, everything is just, like, it, it's a shoestring operation <laughs> at heart. A death mark's not an easy thing to live with, the general tells him, like— what do you know, General? You're a good fighter, Solo. I hate to lose you. If you think a death mark's hard to live with, try an angry lover. Mm. I thought you had decided to stay, Leia says, while pursuing him through the base after their hilarious, don't get all mushy on me, failed farewell. An illustration of Han's arrested emotional development still, despite his general suaveness and charm. Han, we need you. We need? Yes. Well, what about you? Hello. The whole movie is like this. He, is, he is such a needy little oh, boy man. in this. I need? I don't know what you're talking about. You probably don't. <laughs> Compare that to the romantic courtship dialogue in Attack of the Clones, that cloying, fumbling nature. As we have talked about before, the chemistry between the actors in the original trilogy elevates the entire experience. It elevates it's not it. something you it's can incredible. replicate. You just yeah. catch you, you magic get, there. Yeah, you get lucky with it. But this scene right here, this kind of exchange really highlights the difference that the actual language can also make. This is how people talk. This is how they dance around each other when they're too afraid of what they want or of what someone else might want. And what precisely am I supposed to know? Come on. You want me to stay because of the way you feel about me. Yes, Leia says. You're a great help to us. You're a natural leader. <laughs> no, he shouts, pointing at her face. That's not it. Come on. People are cutting in and out between them. The halls are crowded with the movements of war. And it's a really nice heightened reflection of the obstacles to their love. You're imagining things. Am I? Why are you following me? Afraid I was going to leave without giving you a goodbye kiss? I'd just as soon kiss a Wookiee. I can arrange it's, that. By the way, mean. 
This next part is really rough. Yeah. You could use a good kiss, he says now. That has not aged well. No. <laughs> but in general, the scene crackles. Their chemistry just cutting through the screens like a wampa's claws. Luke may be the chosen one, 2.0, but he has no chance against this. And no one would. Also, of course, Leia is his sister. And Han really is going to leave. If not for Chewie's Falcon repairs, he would have bounced before 3PO arrived with the news that no one can find Luke. Impossible man, 3PO declared. This is Han, having just silenced the protocol droid with a hand to the mouth, continues to remind us that he's a jerk. And we absolutely love him for it. The proto-Jamie Lannister, yes. our problematic, handsome boy, oh. fuck boy fave. <laughs> One of the best things about Han, though, is that every time he does something, or many somethings, to make you feel like a bit of a fool for loving him, he rewards your faith, reminding you that beneath the scoundrel smarm, he is a softie who just wants to protect the people he loves and actually wants to believe in something. Yeah. Following two nonsensical lines, the declaration that a tauntaun, a beast <laughs> native to Hoth, would freeze outside at night? I don't understand that. And then, of course, and, it does happen. His tauntaun just dies. And Han's use of real-world dialect when he shouts, I'll see you in hell! It's off to find old bestie. Han and Leia are tied together throughout the film. And, of course— Often tied up with Luke, too, the three woven together in a web of friendship, unflappable loyalty, and yes, sexual tension. Absolutely, <laughs> so it is there. With Han out looking for Luke and no word of either of their status, Leia finds herself in the position of having to approve the base doors being shut overnight, sealing out her two closest friends for the sake of protecting the rest of the camp from the elements. Star Wars is full of these trolley problems. Every decision, a cost-benefit analysis uh-huh. between the camps you're striving to protect. Chewie cries out, and moans in fear and despair at the news that Han is missing too. And 3PO, I don't know what he's doing here, offers up these incredibly unhelpful words. R2 says this chances of a survival are 725 to 1. Actually, R2 is known to make mistakes from time to time. First of all, no, he isn't. Yeah. Don't slander R2's reputation. Second of all, why are you telling people this? Honestly, some of the best odds he's given them, but still, like, <laughs> what are you doing? Clearly, 3PO, like Ron, needs some tips from the 12 fail-safe ways to charm witches. Han does not need to read it because his effortless charms somehow elevate even further on his rescue mission when he risks his life to save Luke. What a pal. These two really do have that bond, that surprising hard-won mutual respect that's sprung up between them. Kind of like a testament to that old Cat Stark idea. Passion's fun, but it fizzles. The love that you work to earn, it's stronger, it lasts longer. And that can go for friendships, too. You build them brick by brick. Or flirtation by flirtation for a relationship. Well, your worship, Han says, it looks like you managed to keep me around a little longer. She blames the general and the new restrictions on aerial travel. Han's take, I think you just can't bear to let a gorgeous guy like me out of your sight. That is certainly how we feel. It is hilariously wonderful to see Luke in the background in his hospital bed as this exchange unfolds, a third wheel so loosening, screw by screw, rolling away from the bike. Chewie's there too, getting in on the barbs, but one insult is a hair too far. Who's scruffy looking, Han says. Now he can be mean. He can be sweet. But he's always a riot. And when Han says to Luke that he must have gotten pretty close to the marks, get Leia all riled up, she responds in now infamous fashion, saying well, I guess you don't know everything about women yet. And then planning a big, fat, wet kiss right on her brother's lips, much to his oh my God. clear delight. He's loving life. Leans back, hands behind his head, lightsaber in his pants, fully on display. My guy was up in the guts of a tauntaun mere hours ago, and now he's thinking about getting up and 
the princess's guts. <laughs> when you look at Empire now, Lawrence Kasdan said in a conversation, you can't really see it the way people saw it back then. There had never been anything so like tr- that. It's absolutely true. Now, he was speaking specifically about the scale and majesty of it all, but obviously it applies to the experience as a whole. And even to something like this, we can't unlearn what we already know, despite Yoda wanting us to. We can't watch a scene like this without thinking about the Luke-Leia sibling reveal to come in Return of the Jedi. It's impossible! It's impossible! We can't replicate the feeling of really believing that Luke might have had a chance to win Leia's love from Han. But that's part of the fun of it, part of the joy that stories give us as we return to them time and again, year after year. Sometimes with new knowledge from new installations in the canon, altering our perception or opening our eyes to new details that we just couldn't see before. It's one of the many things that make the best and most immersive stories immortal. They're always there for us, constant but ever-changing. Han, despite nearly dipping to go pay back Jabba weirdly in the middle of a war, is consistently on the front lines for the rebels. When some weird chatter surfaces on the comms, (laughs) Han and Chewie are the ones who go to scout. Again, we can't, like— Crazy. We can't send just two other—what about all these, like, hundreds of soldiers that go to the trenches. Also, he was just out overnight. Yeah, like, (laughs) we never, of course, doubt where Leia will be when it's time to evacuate Echo Base ahead of the Imperial attack. There is that great scene of Leia dispensing marching orders, explaining to the soldiers and the audience exactly what they're about to see. The entire battalion, the entire camp, the entire rebel cause looks to her and will continue to do so both through this trilogy and the sequel trilogy. She's magnetic, a born leader dispensing battle plans and hope with equal aplomb. And she's unafraid to make even the hardest choices. It might be hard to protect two transports at once, but if they don't try, they'll die. But even amid these literal life or death stakes, there's still room for a little romance. You all right? Han asks, running to check on Leia after hearing that the command center had been hit. Her reply, why are you still here? Iconic stuff from these throughout the entire movie. Hall of Fame type will they or won't they? You got your clearance to leave. Don't worry, I'll leave. But first, I'm going to get you to your ship. Han loves three things very much. His buddy, Chewie. Yes. His ship, the Millennium Falcon, himself. But he loves something else more, Leia. He doesn't want to leave without ensuring that she's safely aboard the final transport. Genuinely genuinely touching. When the Imperial troops breach the base, we go from— Imperial troops are in the base. Imperial troops are in the— (laughs) Flirty and fun to quite grave. And that is— Quickly. It, that is oh, an alarm. Quick Can you imagine, like, you're a rebel, oh, you're fighting in the— An absolutely alarming announcement to hear come over the comms. Treat yourself, by the way, to the deleted scene of a wampa in the base, if you can. Amazing. Come on, that's it, Han says. And not in his usually gruff and demanding way, but in a way that shows really finally how serious he is about how he feels about her. He can't allow harm to come her way. Han's not subtle. He wears his emotions on his sleeve, but this is a rare one from him. True concern. When the base begins to cave in after Veer's hit on the power generator, Han realizes that Leia's not going to be able to reach her transport. They'll escape together on the Falcon, which Leia rudely calls a bucket of bolts here. A lot of moments between all of these characters where they're just being very rude to each other about the things they love while trying to save each other. Punch it! Just as Vader enters the hangar. They're pursued by Star Destroyers and TIE Fighters leading to Han's vile shut him up or shut him down jab at 3PO. Shut him up or shut him down! Now, 3PO is also a bully in this movie, but that is terrible. I mean, that's like, it's one of the— And then later, Leia does shut him down. I I gotta say, the the morality of just shutting off 3PO is troubling and very questionable. It's awful! Yeah, you can't just, like, shut someone off. Terrible! Qui-Gon style. (laughs) 
<laughs> and then, in an insane moment, two of the destroyers just crash into each other because Han whoops the Falcon around a bit. Amazing okay. that the Empire didn't last longer. Vader may be fearsome, but the rest of these dummies are kind of a joke. But not a joke. The asteroid field in which they fly while trying to fix the hyperdrive to jump to light speed. Han, just like Luke in this way, natural improviser, gunslinger through and through. Why worry about the asteroids when you can fly right into the field, cloaking yourself in a new danger to the enemy? Sir, 3PO shouts, the possibility of successfully navigating an asteroid field is approximately 3,720 to 1. Never Ever. tell me the odds. Han slides into what he thinks is an asteroid, but ultimately proves to be the gullet of an exogorth space slug. Mm. Fun nugget here, which we can now appreciate in a new way. When Han tells 3PO, I need you to talk to the Falcon and find out what's wrong with the hyperdrive, we know after Solo, a Star Wars story, that 3PO is in fact communicating with L3, whose brain was uploaded into the Falcon after her untimely demise. Of her body, anyway. Sir, I don't know where your ship learned to communicate, but it has the most peculiar dialect. I mean, you guys kind of speak alike, so what are you talking about? L3, still trying to figure out how to communicate. You know what? Like, if there's any droid that would make L3 regret her, like, (laughs) droid freedom stance, it is C-3PO. Well, they don't get along. I wish she had a body, because she would absolutely fucking hate him. Anyway... Leia and Han, who share this exchange while trying to figure out why the Falcon's shaking and jostling inside of what they believe to be a stable cave structure inside of an asteroid, let go. Shh. Let go, please. <laughs> Han, you got to let go if you should help. You got to You got to do that. Jesus. Captain, being held by you isn't quite enough to get me excited. I Sorry, sweetheart. Disagree. I haven't got time for anything else with that smirk. It's <sighs> amazing. When Han, after being a dick to 3PO yet again and stealing his Falcon repair idea, goes to find Leia, <laughs> Leia struggling with her own repair efforts, uh, they share an intimate moment. Stop that. God. Han. You got, when they say stop, you got to stop. stop Jesus. What? Stop that. My hands are dirty. My hands are dirty too. What are you afraid of? Afraid? You're trembling. I'm not trembling. And then he leans in. You like me because I'm a scoundrel. There aren't enough scoundrels in your life. I happen to like nice men. I'm a nice man. No, you're not. You're, and then they kiss. Oh my God, it's incredible. Incredible moment, which is immediately doused in a <laughs> bucket of ice water by 3PO, but historic and wonderful in and of itself. Just a devastating 3PO cock block there. Following the reveal that the Falcon is in fact inside of a space slug, Minox attach themselves to Delicious the Delicious when barbecued, though. Attaching themselves to the ship, our sexy pals escape through a hand puppet. Truly a tiny falcon model zipped past a hand puppet playing the slug, according to the Imperial Fleet. Featurette, wonderful. How is that for practical effects? But Vader and the Imperial Fleet have remained hell-bent on finding the falcon and the rebels on board. Enter the bounty hunter's boss. We don't need those scum. (laughs) And of course. Yes, you do, buddy. The space spur-wearing cowboy boba. Vader has one instruction. Find them and use whatever method you want, but I want them alive. Quote, no disintegrations. Mandalorian fans now, of course, have no appreciation for this moment, given Mando's routine, routine use of a pulse gun to horrifyingly disintegrate his opponents. High comedy ensues after the fleet locates the ship and the Falcon can't jump to light speed. It's not fair, Han laments. But it winds up being a showcase for Han's ingenuity. He's not just a flashy flyboy. He's an artist in the air, an innovator, hiding the Falcon atop the Star Destroyer like a barnacle on a whale. Captain Nita's decision to report the matter to Vader firsthand, like a responsible minion, does not go super well. 
given that he is forced choked to death. <laughs> Apology accepted, Captain <laughs> Nita. Just an incredible moment. But much like Luke failing to use the force to sense the wampa behind him, Vader does not sense the falcon right above him. Han, after Leia again, just shuts down 3PO without consent. Terrible. It's more, morally, tro- morally troubling, certainly. Waits for the fleet to dump their garbage before going to light speed, then drifts away. He thinks undetected in the trash. Always in the trash, Han. Always. And they would have gotten away with it, too, if it weren't for you meddling bounty hunters. <laughs> Boba Fett, who, thanks to the since retconned explanation that he learned the trick from watching Obi-Wan hide an asteroid and attack of the clones, according to John Noel on the episode 2 DVD, waits for the Falcon to scoot off into space, then follows his bounty to Bespin, where Han has decided to go find his old buddy Lando Calrissian, who's a card player, gambler, scoundrel. I think you'd like him from whom he won the Falcon. And there's quite a bit of history, as we've seen Solo. Han knows he can't trust Lando, a troubling starting point for the plan, admittedly, but he's counting on Lando's lack of love for the Empire, the enemy of your enemy, as your friend, after all. Leia's impressed. You have your moments. Not many of them, but you do have them. Han somehow does not see Boba and Slave One right on his tail, alerting Vader to the Falcon's destination, enabling Vader's trap on Cloud City. In fairness, it's hard to focus on much other than how cool Bespin looks. And there's some great information on its design and creation on discoveries from inside Matt Paintings Unveiled, in which Harrison Ellenshaw describes the goal simply as, quote, elegance is what it's all about. Awesome. Mission accomplished. Rushing off to look at the views, the Falcon's fraud arrival makes it clear that Lando and Han have some choppy history. I'm sure he's forgotten all about that, Han says. I'm going to start here, as is Lando's greeting. Why, you slimy, double-crossing, no-good swindler. Got a lot of guts coming here after what you pulled. The me look that Han throws is just too perfect and things seem to be smooth and easy from there but too smooth too easy Leia's guard is up and up further after Lando's full charm full smarm greeting he's so creepy with her a lot of stuff is not age well in this movie wonderful film but Han who we now know has witnessed some chemistry between Lando and Kira in the past can't wait to wedge them apart here and get to stepping on the Falcon hyperdrive repairs. Lando's listing all his troubles for Han. Supply problems, struggles to achieve self-sufficiency. And Han's amused by how Lando, the rogue that he used to know, seems like an adult now, focused on adult things, a responsible leader, he says. Now, a more astute observer would get one's guard up after hearing this, but these are the problems, of course, that Lando is seeking to solve by making a deal with the Empire. And things start to get more alarming when 3PO gets blasted and decapitated just for entering a room. As we'll learn, it's because he stumbled upon one of the stormtroopers, Drazen. Leia is rightly unnerved. Something's wrong here, she tells Han, who's just happy that the ship repairs are underway. Chewie, unlike Han, who's busy flirting away, is actually out trying to figure out what's going on. Finds 3PO's head and body alarmingly detached from each other in the Ugnaught labor den for more on Ugnaughts and their tragic enslavement. See our Mando chapter two pod. Chewie presents 3PO's mauled body and Leia is absolutely appalled and alarmed. Han is like, eh, Lando's got people who can fix him. <laughs> yeah, whatever. What That's happened to so him? I don't, I'm not even, in, I'm not actually interested. So at all. rough. <laughs> Speaking of Lando, how about some dinner? Yeah, I would love to dine with him. You want to go to dinner? Plus, some inc- he comes with a dinner invite and some incredibly creepy looks and compliments for Leia that, yeah, that continues throughout. And that ultimately is what gets Han to doubt him. And on the walk, Lando offers some exposition for his soon-to-be-revealed treachery. The operation's always at risk of detection, this independent mining operation that he runs. So he has struck a deal to avoid it. 
Uh-huh. Guess what that deal is? A deal with Vader. Hancho's incredible dun, 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 dun. courage and instinctive yeah, bravado here, great. getting his blaster out quickly like the gunslinger he is, firing a couple of shots At out. Darth fucking Vader. Trying to keep him safe. And then it's, I, I remember just being like, holy shit, he can just stop blaster shots with his hand? Okay. I guess everybody's fucked then. Yeah. Chewy, that roar of Rah! Lando apologizes and says he had no choice. The Emperor arrived, tipped by Boba right before the Falcon. But of Fuck course, Boba. we all have a choice, and Lando will soon realize that he can make a different one instead. Chewie's distress over 3PO is so endearing. A display of Chewie's heart and loyalty, that's and that's really, in short supply here. Yeah. He tries to repair him by hand, and he does so with a few inadvertent head reversal tweaks, and 3PO's gratitude is... Uh, Lacking. The words flea bitten furball are used, folks. Vader, meanwhile, is seeing to Han's torture firsthand. Flattering, but upsetting. And hearing Han screams through the door unnerves us as much as anything that we've witnessed in the film to that point. As does the ensuing exchange between Vader and Boba, who has Vader's permission to take Han to Jabba after Vader gets Luke. He's no good to me dead, Boba says. He will not be permanently damaged, Vader says. Ah, super reassuring. Lando doesn't think so. Giving Han to Boba wasn't a condition of their agreement, he says, nor was keeping Leia and Chewie as prisoners. Perhaps you think you're being treated unfairly? You got a problem with this arrangement? Han and Leia are, of course, horrified. I'm sorry, what? To learn that Vader's there for Luke, not them. You're a real hero, Han tells Lando when Lando tries to make excuses. And Han has come a long way, really has, since the early days in A New Hope to being able to recognize and even exemplify what heroism can be. It won't keep him from the carbonite. Han is a test subject before the Emperor's prize goes in. And Han, winningly, wonderfully, is not worried about himself. He's worried about Leia. In the shattering moments when Chewie cries out for his best friend, (laughs) knocking stormtroopers down into the depths, Han has words of comfort in the form of new purpose. The princess, he says, you have to take care of her. And then, This is a heartbreaking scene. One of the most unrivaled moments in Star Wars history. Han and Leia kiss passionately. And as he's backing up into the chamber and Chewie prepares to weep, she says, I love you. And he replies, I know. Swoon! It's absolutely horrible to see Han frozen in carbon. And hard to recall now that we know he'll be rescued in Jedi— How terrifying this was when it first unfolded. Han's sense of invincibility is part of his magnetism. But it was a gift, ultimately, to separate Luke in one direction and Han and Leia in the other for Luke to continue his journey of discovery and growth while Han and Leia accepted and embraced their feelings for each other. That it's all happening not through real or prolonged separation, but through the desire to get back to and protect each other solidifies their bond. And it's a bond that will be tested time and again, including when Luke loses Han and Leia's son, Ben Solo, to the dark side. Whoops. <laughs> I mean, you signed the release. Very tough. When you sent him to Jedi camp. Very tough. And I'm sorry about it. But there's no recourse. It's not what you want. <laughs> but a bond that withstands even that. Recall Luke's devastation when he sees Chewie in the Falcon in R2 and realizes Han is dead in The Last Jedi. Recall the moment his force projection and Leia shared on Crate. It was never easy for these three, but they always managed to find their way back to each other. Leia in the here and now is in peril. Vader's ordered Lando to put her on Vader's ship. I am altering the deal. Pray I don't alter it any further. Lando moves to act as they're moving Han's carbon sheet, activating Laba via a very early prototype of uh, what appears to be an Apple Watch and AirPods. 
Shouts to this dude who's captured via stormtroopers after he rallied the troops that ultimately helped spring our dudes got relegated to a deleted scene. Chewie tries to strangle Lando and Lando frees him, but ultimately they align and find R2 there to save the day, as yep. Jason said. Try to run to save Han, but they're not in time. They still have to fight their way out of Blaster and Leia's hands, all hands on deck. And Lando gets on the PA system, calls for an evacuation, a really brave and bold act with Vader still on sight. Ice cream guy scoots by. And R2, bless him, despite 3PO's bullying, clears the path to the Falcon and issues an unheeded warning about the Falcon's hyperdrive. We'll need that later. The escape mirrors what we'll see from Lando and Kira and L3 and Han on Kessel and Solo. And here, they get away, manage to return to get Luke just in time, and then escape again, this time for good. Han and Carbonite, Lando off to find him. Everyone else together again. New knowledge in their minds, new feelings in their hearts, new adventures ahead. Jason? Yes? I had no choice! <laughs> they arrived right before you did. I'm sorry. But the question, I think, is what else arrived before Empire? So please, gather the Padawan learners. Head to the Jedi Temple. Teach us everything we need to know about the new canon version of events between A New Hope and Empire. <laughs> Looking for some fun Star Wars reading? Check out the Star Wars comic book from Marvel Comics, specifically the stuff written by Kieran Gillen, which contains some really cracking stories set between A New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back. Let's start with the return to Jeddah. Luke, Leia, Han, and Chewie go to the remains of Jeddah to stop Imperials from scavenging what remains of the Kyber Crystal, specifically the material that Saw Gerrera and his partisans stole and ferreted away somewhere deep under the planet. Iba. They make contact. Ah! They make contact with the remains of Saw Gerrera's partisans led by Benthic, the Tognath. And you'll remember him as the uh, guy with the breathing mask and the two tubes that came down. In exchange for supplying Benthic and his crew with arms and medical supplies, the rebels want to team up to stop the Imperial operations on the dying planet. Benthic is firm that he and his fighters will not take orders and they will not tone down their ruthlessness. Saw Gerrera once bombarded a party of collaborating civilians with flechettes just to send a message to the Imperials, he tells them. Will the rebels have the stomach for that? Civilians, amazingly, still live on what remains of Jeddah. The Empire has branded all that remains here part of the rebellion. The planet is, and always has been, strong with the Force, though that energy is now wild and wounded here, almost like a kyber crystal that has been turned dark. Mm -hmm. A rough temple has been erected on the edge of the crater caused by the Death Star. Among the partisans, Jin Erso and her fighters have taken on a stature of myth. Luke is affected by the plight of the people and the extermination tactics of the Empire. Imperial General Kanchar unleashes a huge orbital drill to extract the remaining Kyber, but the rebels and the partisans destroy it, with the Millennium Falcon providing the kill shot. Luke and Benthic fight side by side, and young Skywalker is shocked by Benthic's brutality as he executes Imperial hostages with ease. But the drill was merely a warm-up. Unbeknownst to the rebels, the Empire brings up a city-sized mantle peeler built by their ally, Queen Trios, of Shuturon. It's called the Leviathan. It is so large that once it's in the atmosphere, the Empire just plans to simply leave it there. Luke, against Leia's wishes, makes a pilgrimage to the temple at the edge of the void. The force, again, as we mentioned, is wild there. But the temple is a sacred place, existing to bear witness to the desecration of the Force. Using plans stolen by Chewbacca and secretly leaked by Queen Trios, a supposed Imperial ally, 
Leia crafts a plan to take down the Leviathan. After Benthic is wounded, Chewie urges Han to become a leader, and Han does this, giving us a really fun comics version of the I'm the captain now moment. During the attack, Leia and Queen Trios meet and strike a deal. Shu Toron isn't strong enough to openly defy the Empire, but the Queen will be the Rebels' contact inside the Empire and work to bring about their downfall while providing the Rebels with the raw materials they need to build a fleet. In the end, the raid is successful, and the Leviathan is put on a course straight to the bottom of the crater caused by the Death Star. Also, we discover that Han has maybe made copies of his Battle of Yavin medal. Mm. I don't know if he's joking about this, but he's like, yeah. he gives someone his medal, and yeah. they're like, wait, is that your legitimate medal? He's the guy I made, I made a bunch. <laughs> Building the fleet. To build the fleet, our heroes, along with Admiral Akbar, travel to Mon Kala, Akbar's home. The rebels have a robust spy network, but what they lack is firepower to exploit that intelligence and the muscle to smash the targets that they then identify. Mon Cala has the greatest merchant fleet in the galaxy. The Mon Calamari, like the late General Radis, are wily, experienced spacefarers. And delicious. They're uh, so good. Leia's plan is to ally with the Mon Calamari, have their merchant fleet retrofitted into battle cruisers, and then dispersed across the galaxy so that they can call on them when needed. But the Calamari have suffered under the Imperial yoke. To keep them on their knees, the Empire has been holding the Mon Calamari king, Lee Char, hostage for nearly 20 years. If they rebel openly, the planet will be bombarded and the king executed, which makes Leia, a native of Alderaan, the perfect envoy, because she, of course, understands the sacrifice that would need to be made here. But Urtya, Grand Admiral of the Mon Calamari fleet and the de facto leader and protector of the planet in the king's absence, refuses to help. He has no love for the Empire. None of the Mon Calamari do. But he does have a duty to his people, and the cost, in his estimation, is simply too high, the danger too great. But, Leia thinks, what if King Leechar could be freed? Leia contacts Trios with a request for information, and the queen comes through. She gives over the location of the ultra-high security prison where Leechar is being held and the necessary security codes to go in there and get him. All that's needed is a biosignature to gain entrance into the prison. To gain that... Leia plans to kidnap the Imperial Moth in charge of the Mon Calamari sector of galactic space. In the meantime, the Rebels have been hiding in the Outer Rim on Makota. But after Yavin, they need a new permanent base, and that search continues. Our heroes launch a daring raid on a bounty hunter facility to spring Tunga Arpagian, a Claudite shapeshifter. When they open the cell, Tunga, real dick move here, takes on the form of Bail Organa. So he's sitting there like Leia's dead father, and Leia punches him in the face. It's like, don't ever do that again. They stun him, escape, and escape before security can counterattack. Leia's plan is this. She'll kidnap the moth of Mon Calamari, then use Tunga to impersonate the moth while they spring King Leechar from prison. And if it works, no one will ever know they were there until it's too late. Using intel from Trios, the rebels poison the moth's drink at the reception for the opening of the Mon Calamari opera season. Big opera fans mm. on Mon Calamari. Sure. When the moth runs to the nearest restroom to evacuate his bowels, the rebels are waiting and they snatch him. Tunga replicates his face and voice and re-enters to take his place. Leia, Han, Chewie take them off to go free Leechar, leaving 3PO amazingly in charge of the operation at the Opera House. Incredible. Very, like, Mission Impossible There's a ton. There. Of, there's yeah. really fun, like, spycraft stuff. The King is being held on Stroke Hill Prime, a water planet teeming, of course, with alien fish of huge size. But when our heroes get to the King, they discover that he is in grave health, hooked to machines which sustain his life. Meanwhile, back on Mon Cala, the five-hour opera has ended, and Tonga, improvising, because he's an actor by trade, takes the stage as the moth, along with C-3PO, and begins a 
another classic Mon Calamari opera with only them doing it. And the opera lasts three hours. Amazing. Incredible stuff. But the Imperials on Strokill Prime have sent the alarm up. In the opera house, stormtroopers now aware that the moth is an impersonator burst in. But the house lights go down and Tonga and 3PO manage to run for their lives. The king, of course, is too weak to be moved. So Leia explains the situation as best she can. Moncala is occupied. But the Empire must be confronted. The rebels need Moncala's ships. But Ertia refuses to give them over, so the king agrees to help. He makes an address to his people, which Leia videotapes, asking them to lend their support to the rebellion. Just then, Imperial security arrives, and the king is killed in the ensuing battle, and our heroes manage to fight their way off the planet. On Moncala, Tonga, 3PO, and R2 slip away in the chaos. They meet up with Leia's team on a remote island, but Ertia has tracked them there. Backed by Mon Calamari security forces, he takes possession of the king's recording and tells the rebels to leave the planet immediately. And yet he's made a fateful decision. Later, he orders the Regency staff evacuated, and he opens a channel to the Calamari fleet and broadcasts the video of the ailing king's speech. It is a incredibly emotional moment. The video closes with the king saying this. The fleet is Mon Cala's pride. Mon Cala knows the empire's evil. Their atrocities are burned on our flesh. We know what wrongs they have done, but we can only guess at the horrors they will do next. If we are with them, when they do so, all our pride will curdle to shame. It cannot be so. Goodbye, my people. And just then in the videotape, the stormtroopers rush in and gun him down. On the Calamari merchant ships, the crews, flushed with rage, attack their Imperial garrisons. But the Imperials act quickly. The Imperial fleet comes out of hyperspace ready to destroy the Mon Calamari fleet. But then Admiral Akbar and all the ships he can muster comes to defend his people. And the battle is brutal and costly, with Akbar displaying his tactical brilliance and the Mon Calamari Navy displaying their valor. The rebels punch through the Imperial blockade and escape to hyperspace. The Empire's retribution on Mon Cala, however, is devastating and swift. But the rebels have a fleet. Betrayal! Months later, on Makota, the rebels hold a gathering to celebrate and consecrate their new fleet freshly retrofitted into warships. The whole rebel leadership is there. It is the largest gathering of rebels many have ever seen. As Mon Mothma finishes her speech with X-Wings flying in the background, trailing sparkly lights, Imperial warships commanded by Vader himself come out of hyperspace. The rebel fleet's hyperdrives have been sabotaged and Makata's base hangar doors will not open. The rebels are defenseless and have been taken completely unawares. Vader waits a moment, feeding off of their fear so that the rebels can take in the enormity of what was about to happen. And then he begins to pick off rebel warships. Queen Trios has been working for Vader all along. Her aid in taking down the Leviathan, the materials and intelligence she provided, all a ruse, a poison pill. Vader knew the rebels were trying to build a fleet, so he helped them, maneuvering them into position so he could crush them in one fell Swoop. Suddenly, the tracker on the Millennium Falcon is like child's play. Anakin, smart guy. Smart guy. The queen had slipped away in the middle of the rebel celebration. Rebel forces led by Leia herself board Trio's ship before she can take off, and they fight their way through her guards, but the queen escapes in a life pod. Vader's ships pummel the defenseless rebels who are dying in huge numbers. All seems lost. Just then, Han and Chewie, who are like partying and drinking out in the outer rim, come out of hyperspace to see the shocking scene. Leia contacts Han to tell him that while the door controls are offline, the proximity sensors on the hangar doors do still work. So all the pilots need to do is fly at them and they will open. However, all communication systems are down. 
Han, dogfighting with Vader, gets this message to the Rebels by throwing 3PO out into space toward an airlock. (laughs) Message received. Luke leads Rogue Squadron into battle, and soon all the remaining Rebel warships are launching their fighter wings. On Makota, General Draven discovers that the shutoff code for Queen Trio's malicious sabotage software is located on Vader's flagship. No big deal. Leia launches a raid on the ship using Queen Trio's shuttle to gain access. They manage to get the codes, but Vader is there too. Leia escapes in a lone TIE fighter while Draven and his men stay behind to delay Vader at the cost of their lives. The codes are then dispersed to the remaining ships. The battered rebel fleet escapes to hyperspace, but many rebel commanders perish. In the wake of the battle, the surviving ships of the fleet have hidden themselves in far-flung corners of the galaxy, but secrecy is paramount. Even the rebel leaders don't know where all the ships are. With the rebel leaders decimated, Mon Mothma promotes Leia, Luke, and Han to general, commander, and colonel, respectively. Although don't call Han colonel because he hates it. Hates it. Hates it! (laughs) But our heroes are separated with Leia, Luke, and Han and the droids marooned on the strange moon, Hubin, and Chewbacca with the Falcon, with Akbar's forces. How about Hubin? This moon is populated by the mysterious Marcona clan. Once upon a time, these former mercenaries performed a mission for the Empire. And as compensation, they received complete ownership of their homeworld, Hubin, as their sole property. There are no communicators on Hubin, and contact with the wider galaxy is limited. They like their isolation there. Our friends spend weeks on Hubin, including a fun moment where Han, <laughs> shirtless, yes. chops wood for drinks. Amazing. Leia comes up on him and is like, oh my gosh. Shame. <laughs> I showed Mal the screenshot Whoa. of this and she was like, what? So handsome. The princess uses this time to plan her attack on Shu Torun and Queen Trio's payback for Makota. Luke trains with Thane Marcona, the clan's leader and the child of a Jedi mother and romances Tula Marcona, the Thane's daughter. Eventually, however, Scar Squadron, an elite stormtrooper force, tracks the rebels to Hubin. But Thane dies fighting them, allowing our heroes to escape in the Scar Squadron shuttle. And the rest of Clan Marcona evacuates Hubin and joins the rebellion. Revenge of the Princess! Yes. Leia, Luke, Han, and the droids make it to Akbar's flagship. Han reunites with Chewie and checks up on the Falcon, which took a severe beating during Han's dogfight with Vader. Leia meets with Akbar. The Mon Calamari Admiral is relieved to see that these heroes of the Rebellion survived the Makota debacle, and he asks if Leia has a plan. Of course she does. <laughs> she tells him their next move will be to attack Shu Torun. But the mission isn't merely about revenge, though that's absolutely a part of it, Leia openly states. The world provides the Empire with significant material important to its economy. A blow struck against Queen Trio's world is a blow against the Empire. When the rebels hacked into Shu Toe-run sabotage software during the Battle of Makota, they also discovered a complete layout of the system's infrastructure and punishing environment. Using this, Leia crafts her plan and assembles her team. For stealth, Tunga the Claudite shapeshifter. For fighters, used to the hell world conditions they'll encounter on Shu Toe-run, Benthic and the Partisans. And for engineering expertise, Miorti, a rebel mechanic. The key is the spike, a massive structure running from the surface through the core of the planet like a stick through a candied apple. The spike taps the gravity fields in the planet's core, allowing the Shu Torun to harvest its energy and use it as energy shields. These shields make the planet habitable. The rebels plan to hit the spike, taking down the energy shields in critical areas, devastating Shu Torun's industrial capacity. 
working in two teams, the rebels gain access to Queen Trio's imperial retreat, hack into the infrastructure controls, and take total control of the planet and launch an attack on the spike itself. Things get complicated, of course. Luke's strike team includes Benthic and the Partisans. Not satisfied with merely crippling Shuto Run economically, Benthic wants to make it Jeddah's twin and tear the world apart. She double-crosses Luke and uses R2 to set the spike to overload. Simultaneously, Queen Trios manages to launch a counterattack on the Imperial Resonance. On Huben, Scar Squadron found evidence of Leia's plan and warned Imperial General Conchar, who rushes to Shuto Run and begins bombarding the Imperial retreat from space. In the end, Tunga distracts the Imperials so that the rebels can escape, and Leia manages to talk Benthic out of committing planetary genocide. The spike is destroyed, however, meaning Shu Run can no longer provide resources to the Empire, and Queen Trios is killed. The rebels return to Akbar's flagship Home One to prepare for their next mission, scouting locations for the next rebel base. Will it be Atenu? How about Jabon Four? Hmm. What about Lonanania Prime? No. Moopin 12? Give me one more. Hoth. Ever heard of it? Bah, bah, bah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Mal? Yeah. The Nuggets will join us or die, Master. So let's roll like BB-8 through eight of our favorite insights and observations from this episode, Lightning Round Style. You go first. Number one. Let's start as the movie does on Hoth. Yeah. And learn more about the ice planet. The sixth planet from the sun in the Hoth system, located in the Outer Rim, Hoth's surface could reach negative 76 degrees Fahrenheit at night, which explains all the caution around the rebels' travel after dark. Nothing will explain the fact that animals, creatures who are native and based here can't survive in the elements, but that's another story. There is no known intelligent life on the planet, according to the canon. I find this offensive to imply that the animals, the creatures, are not intelligent. But Intelligi- anyway. Intelligence is range. Which is one reason it was selected, ultimately, by the Rebellion as the new rebel base. But a number of non-sentient creatures call it home. Again, I, I reject the binary, but <laughs> here we are. There are wampas, the large carnivorous creatures that prey on the others. There are 15 varieties of tauntaun, which all smell to high heaven due to their fatty, blubbery bodies. Mm. Better to protect them, though, from the cold. A lot of good it did them. There are ice scrabblers, furry rat-like creatures that, as their name suggests, scrabble on the ice. There are the Rebu, which Legends canon details as antlered creatures similar to elk. And there are sapphire ice worms. Wonderful. (laughs) Which dig through the ice to make hollowed out tunnels beneath the planet's surface, which in turn make haunting melodies that sound out through the planet at night. What an eerie, miserable... Or awesome, kind of cool, place to hide. Number two, what about the men who run the rebels off the planet? The Imperial group that routes Echo Base is called the Blizzard Force, led by General Maximilian Veers. General Veers. And it specializes in cold weather conditions much like those found on Hoth. The Blizzard Force consists of two main groups, those responsible for operating the ADATs and ATST walkers. No, I thought it was Overwatch and Call of Duty. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Learn more about those in the Jedi Temple of our Mandalorian Chapter 4 podcast and the cold weather assault stormtroopers. Those stormtroopers are elite, handpicked to train and perform in extreme environments, and they have the equipment to match a heated breathing mask powered by a two-week-long battery. Damn. Yikes. Apple, where are you at? It's great stuff there. Kindle-esque. Plenty of insulation in their suits, special boots suited to grip the ice, and more. 
They are also split into two subgroups themselves. The first are the Arctic Jumbo Troopers, who are equipped with jetpacks to gain positional and tactical advantages via the power of temporary flight. And the second are the Heavy Snow Troopers, who are given both the standard cold weather training of all cold weather assault troopers and advanced weapons training, so they can use items like the Z6 Rotary Blaster Cannon and the DLT-19 Heavy Blaster Rifle to do more concentrated damage from longer agents. On Hoth, all that specialized prep work clearly paid off. The Blizzard Force lost a few AT-ATs, easily overran the rebel defenses and forced them into scattering into hiding once more. Number three. After escaping Hoth, Han, Leia, Chewie, and C-3PO end up on Cloud City, which is just a bit more fun than a freezing planet populated mainly by worms, rats, and yeti-like <laughs> predators. Or so you think. Cloud City is located in the outer rim planet Bespin, a gas giant about the size of Saturn whose atmosphere contains Tabana gas used in hyperdrives and starship armaments. Thus, sentient beings settled in the one habitable region of the planet called the Life Zone. Handy label there. <laughs> Which contains a narrow strip of breathable air that allowed a mining colony to flourish right next to valuable gas. And flourish Cloud City does. The disc-like man-made structure contains 392 levels. Goodness. Which hosts millions of mine workers and support staff and also plenty of tourists. Cloud City is a veritable vacation wow. destination. Top 50 levels are home to a giant luxury resort, as well as casinos like Yareth Bespin and Paradise. And gambling is the main luxury activity on the planet. Yeah. Against all odds, Bespin. For the visitor tired of losing at Sabak, or just frankly tired of learning the rules, <laughs> the city also offers a sightseeing service high into the clouds. And the city has an interesting behind-the-scenes backstory as well. In an early draft of episode four, the film was set to visit the planet Alderaan, where a, quote, magnificent domed and gleaming city is perched mushroom-like on a tall spire. George eventually scrapped this idea for Alderaan, but Ralph McQuarrie had already started working on that design, which he then carried over easily to create Cloud City for Episode 5. In 2014, McQuarrie told StarWars.com of his thought process behind the clouds surrounding the city, quote, we're used to seeing clouds follow the Earth's surface. The planet is all gas, and I began to wonder about how that could impact things. So I decided to make my clouds go up. Science and Star Wars, folks. Valuable gas, folks. <laughs> Number four. Tabana gas itself is interesting. The process behind its mining is complex and sometimes dangerous. The architecture of the man-made cloud city was constructed with a mining purpose in mind. All the lower levels are devoted to the valuable extraction process that gives the city its worth. And the long, thin spire that appears to descend all the way below the clouds is a central part of that procedure. To mine Tabana gas requires first yanking it out of Bespin's lower atmosphere using tractor beams generated from the underside of the city. The Tabana then travels up the reactor stock into one of the several reactor shafts, and that's where Luke falls after his duel with Vader, and eventually through a processing vein that extracts the gas. So it really was an anus. <laughs> it's I mean, all a processing a vein, it's sure. It's all a fart yeah. metaphor. <laughs> Here's where the Tabana work intersects fully with the events at the end of Empire. After going through the processing vein, the gas is flash-frozen for better preservation and transportation using the very carbon freeze chamber that Vader uses on Han and tries to use on Luke. Normally, someone of Vader's stature wouldn't be flipping those switches. The Ugnaughts of Bespin do most of the grunt work, and there are even some areas in the giant Tabana extraction machine in which only an Ugnaught can physically fit. Learn more about Ugnaughts and their role in Cloud City in our second Mandalorian pod. Shouts to Quill. Number five. Here's a fun grammar nerd one. We know, of course, that Yoda uses 
a strange sentence structure, or should I say a strange sentence structure Yoda uses? That's because he switches the parts of a sentence, not just against the natural order in English, but against the natural order of almost every known language spoken on planet Earth. Let's take a simple Yoda statement from this movie as an example to deconstruct here. Friends you have. Now, in this sentence, <laughs> you is the subject, yeah. have is the verb, and friends is the object. So in English, where most of our sentences take a subject, verb, object construction, we'd say, you have friends. The subject, then the verb, then the object. Okay. As a great 2015 Atlantic piece on Yoda's syntax explains, many human languages work this way, while others use a subject, object, verb, or a verb, subject, object form. That's because we want to put the most important information first. And the most important information in most sentences we speak is the subject. That's who the sentence is ultimately about. But then comes Yoda, who switches between a variety of sentence structures, but often uses the one expressed here, object, subject, verb, abbreviated as OSV, friends you have. Here, the friends comes first, not the you, even though you is who the sentence is about. Sounds weird because it is. Linguistics professor Jeff Pullum told The Atlantic, quote, surprisingly, there are very few languages. It seems to be in single digits that use OSV as their basic or normal order. As far as I know, they occur only in the area of Amazonia and Brazil. It's wild. Wow. And Pullum said in a 2005 Chicago Tribune interview, those rare OSV languages hadn't yet been discovered by the time of the original trilogy. So Yoda was doing something truly unbelievable when he was introduced. Pullum told the Tribune, quote, the one thing you could do to make your syntax seem quite strange to almost all of the six billion people on this planet, no matter which of the 6,000 languages they spoke, would be to adopt object initial order as the normal order. Not everyone is a fan of this. You see things like this and you start to understand why George says sometimes they hated it. In his Revenge of the Sith review in 2005, so to be clear, this is about the prequels, not yeah. about Empire Strikes Back. The New Yorker's Anthony Lane, a titan, a titan of criticism. True titan. Quipped, quote, what's with the screwy syntax? Deepest mind in the galaxy, apparently. And you still express yourself like a day tripper with a dog-eared phrase book. Break me a fucking give. I think it's unfair. <laughs> I, I think it's unfair. Break me a fucking give. I think give. there's a lot of ways to criticize Yoda's actions in the prequels. Wow. And I think, I think the way he speaks is iconic and <laughs> honestly not something that we should be criticizing him about. Number six, speaking of lines of dialogue, while not as culturally resonant as I am your father, Han mm. Solo delivers a line just as perfect for the character at the end of his arc in Empire. When Leia says, I love you, mm -hmm. Han replies, I know. But that response was not in the script. <gasps> On set, Harrison Ford suggested the change Amazing. and explained why in a sit down with Jon Favreau during the Cowboys and Aliens press tour. Remember Cowboys and Aliens, folks? Quote, George had artfully contrived for Han Solo to say, I love you, too. I thought it was a lost opportunity. <laughs> this character had never behaved so unabashedly emotional and conventional before. And I thought, are you pissing away this great opportunity <laughs> for the character? You want your badasses to be badass to the oh end. You want them to go down the way they lived. So I said, what's the last thing a woman wants to hear when she says, I love you? Oh, my God. End quote. Director Irv Kirshner agreed that the new line suited Han's character better. One person who didn't guess who. George! He hated it! <laughs> he actually he hated it! hated it! <laughs> oh my God. 
in two in a 2010 Vanity Fair interview, Kirschner said that the only disagreement he had with Lucas on the film concerned this one line. Quote, George said the first cut and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> That's not the line in the script. Oh my God. Then Kirschner even agreed to do two different preview screenings, one with I know, and one with the more generic I love you too response to see which played better. But after the first screening, which had, I know, audience reacted so warmly <laughs> that they decided not to even test the alternative. He yeah. got dunked on so hard oh that he's like, I don't want it anymore. I don't want it. <sighs> Screenwriter Lawrence Kasdan told the New York Times in 2017 about this line, quote, I didn't write it. <laughs> it took me a long time to even accept. Amazing. He continued with a laugh, quote, at the moment it bothered me. Now I hope I get credit for it. Ford, for his part, told the New York Times, quote, Oh, that's ridiculous. He's still mad. He wasn't as mad as George was, but then I had Kirshner to share the blame. I can't apologize. <laughs> I still think it was just a better line. Oh, my God. And in that Favreau interview, Ford remembered Lucas's anger a bit more vividly. Quote, George, I think that this is fair enough to say. What ape shit. <laughs> <laughs> he thought it was horrible. But you know what? Oh my like, God. Let's give the guy credit because- Which guy? George, yeah. because when he saw it mm -hmm. and saw the reaction, he was like, fine. But when I he, respect it. When he first heard it, he hated he it. Legitimately hated it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Number seven. Plenty more dialogue could have been different and even entire story beats if earlier drafts of the script had gone through to filming. The initial Empire script, in fact, wasn't written by Lucas or Kasdan at all. Instead, Lee Brackett got a first crack at this based on an outline that Lucas had provided. Brackett was a sci-fi legend, screenwriting veteran, and she was so closely tied to the sci-fi community that Ray Bradbury was the best man at her wedding. And she had experience with popular films as well, having worked on such scripts as The Big Sleep and The Long Goodbye. But while her initial Empire script included many of the same big moments that occur in the final product that we now know and love, her vision didn't fully mesh with Lucas's. George said in an interview for Star Wars, the annotated screenplays, quote, I didn't like the first script, but I gave Lee credit because I liked her a lot. She was sick at the time she wrote the script and she really tried her best. During the story conferences I had with Lee, my thoughts weren't fully formed and I felt that her script went in a completely different direction. This is ultimately a very sad story here. That sickness turned worse soon after Brackett turned in her first draft and she died of lung cancer oh. in March 1978. So Lucas fleshed out the story further himself before turning to Lawrence Kasdan, who had recently finished writing a draft of the Raiders of the Lost Ark script to work on the new dialogue. Differences between the bracket script, a copy of which is available online if you're interested in reading it, and the final version include the aforementioned Anakin Vader split, plus many more, such as Lando being a clone. At the beginning of the film, Wampa's attacking the rebel base at the same time as the Empire. Vader and Luke having long-distance force chats, kind of like Kylo Hello. and Rey. Only these are more dangerous because Vader can essentially torture Luke from across the galaxy. And Yoda having a completely different name. Initially, Lucas's plan was for Yoda to be named Buffy. This is insane. And by the time of Brackett's draft, it had been changed to Minch. Protect little baby Minch at all costs. Number eight. Because this is binge mode, however, we have to zoom in on the romantic elements of the Lee Brackett script, which yes. plays up the love triangle with a host mm. of seamy scenes. Mm. For instance, Han and Leia kiss deeply at one point. When Leia pulls away because she says, no, we have to think about the mission. Han says, 
two people, alone in the immensity of space. Oh, yeah. Dot, dot, dot. Yes, the suggestive <laughs> ellipses are in the script, folks. Incredible. Later in that scene is a battle surrounds the Millennium Falcon. Han asks Leia, mind if I hold your hand? And they sit together sweetly as, quote, Chewie gives a disgusted grunt and returns to his work. 3PO sighs audibly, end quote. In the next scene together, Han takes Leia in his arms and they admit they love each other. And Han says, quote, why waste what little time we have? They kiss again, only to be interrupted by cock-blocky Chewie and 3PO. As 3PO says, quote, I've never been able to understand the pleasure human beings get from placing their mouths together. Wow. Oh. Just reach, Chat with L3. Just reach to the base of his neck and flip that switch and shut this guy off. Oh, that's mean. I know it is mean. The morality of that is very questionable. Later on, the screenplay says, quote, Han and Leia have their heads together, talking quietly as lovers do. Oh, that's sweet. While the pervert 3PO watches from the <laughs> cockpit, quote, <laughs> not above peeping. Sick. Meanwhile, Luke and Leia evince just as much sexual chemistry. This is very tough. Their kiss early in the film read as follows. Luke, I love you. I want to keep you safe. He kisses her and she returns it. A sweet, tender kiss. She pushes him gently away. Leia, dear Luke, try to understand. Whether I will it or not, I'm the Princess Leia Organa. Leader of the rebel forces. Luke, sadly. And I'm just the farm boy from Tatooine. Leia. You're Luke Skywalker. The fighter pilot who destroyed the Death Star. You have duties, Luke, just as I have. Much greater ones than we could possibly have to each other. It isn't that I couldn't love you. Good lord. Sounds a lot like Anakin and Padme in Attack of the Clones, doesn't it? It's genetic. We can't. I'm a senator princess. Darth Vader even uses Luke's feelings for Leia as bait. Telling him one of their force chats, You're in love with Leia. You don't want to lose her to Han Solo. But she will if you lack the courage to use the strength that's in you. Wow. <laughs> fucking wild advice, Dad. God. Of course, Vader wasn't yet known as Luke's father. And Leia wasn't yet known as Luke's sister. Clearly. Clearly, folks. But there really is nothing sweeter than a father encouraging his two long-lost twins to pursue their romantic love and for his son to use his strength to gain the love of his sister, the daughter. Wow. What would Tywin say, folks? My goodness. Boy, you don't need to know much more than that when you're asking if they... Tywin pretend that he made these changes along the way. Tywin pretend that he had no idea no, about he it. He didn't. He would just be like, no, what? No. Cersei is like, you, you genuinely have no idea. I don't believe you. Jason. Yes. I am altering the podcast. Pray I don't alter it any further. Because every episode, we're going to honor the character who rallied the troops, advanced the cause. And today, the winner of our Medal of Bravery is. Darth Vader! I mean... Come on. He crushes in this. I am your winner! winner. (laughs) It's an all-time movie that elevates Vader from intriguing, brooding baddie to really all-time mythic villain. It introduces us to the Imperial March, Vader's memorable and chilling theme. It's also the movie that, thanks to Vader's iconic and often misquoted line, Mm -hmm. gives us one of the best 
cliffhangers in film history. Vader's at the center of the colossal I am your father reveal and thus at the center of a scene that forms one of the emotional centers of this story. Vader's also at the center of our enhanced glimpses into the Empire, allowing us, through his interactions with the Emperor and attempted recruitment of Luke, to better understand how the dark side and the Imperial regime actually function. Vader's merciless in his pursuits throughout the film, and though he doesn't always win, just missing his targets on Hoth, letting the Falcon slip away, investment, etc., he is relentless and unceasing, force-choking via Skype, mm-hmm. enlisting bounty hunters to his cause with firm instructions. No disintegration. Tell that to Mando. Torturing his bait in Cloud City and without even asking questions. He's like, I'm going to torture you. I don't even want to know anything. Very rough. And slicing off his own son's hand in order to prove a point. And you know, like father, like son, it's not Anakin at his moral best, but it is Vader at his fiercest and most fearsome. Iconic. He also, despite the complex and often warped motivations at this point in the story, He's focused on family. It's nice. Great to see. Crucially, he helps us better understand the Force and the nature of searching your feelings. His tutelage is kind of a twisted twin to the lessons that Luke gets from Yoda, but impactful and memorable nonetheless. All right, friends. Our ally is the Force and a powerful ally it is. Just like Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today that you're as excited as we are to hop back into the speeder continue to explore the galaxy with us, that you'll join us again next time. Till then, remember, never tell us the odds. And yet you keep doing it. Everybody keeps doing it. Okay, 2 p.m., welcome to Dagobah Boot Camp. Are you guys ready? We're going to do rock stacking. We're going to do some core work. We're going to do some handstands. We're going to run through the jungle. You're going to have your own little Yoda attached to your back, screaming at you. Are you guys ready to get going? Remember, we're not trying today. Do or do not. There is no try. Okay. High fives on the way. Let's go, people.